You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 459. Hello, listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at ABG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 3rd of February, 2021. episode, a longtime FAA worker is spared prison time after blocking ATC transmissions. An airline passenger is arrested in Vienna for trying to smuggle in 74 chameleons from Tanzania. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tail flying the red flag. So get all settled in. Three tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 459 is ready for pushback. Well, thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. All right, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an ad-free, listener-supported aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And we're going to start with our first host from his mobile studio in California. World traveler, airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Oh, I'm so happy to be back. It's been a little while. But uh, looking forward to a great show. It's going to be another great one. We are happy that you're here with us again. And also joining us from his studio in the English countryside, he's a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline base in London. It's Captain Nick. Uh, good evening, Jeff, uh, from the United Kingdom. Uh, it's all dark out there, but don't worry, this is the shortest month of the year. It'll be gone before you know it. All right, very good. Well, without further ado, I think we should start off with talking about the latest in aviation news. Stand by for news. On the morning of the 3rd of August, 2018, a two-day tour run by U-Air began, taking its passengers from Dubendorf, north of the Alps, to the canton of Ticino on the south side of the Alps. Both the outward flight on Friday and, and the return flight on Saturday were scheduled to take place on the historic Junkers uh, U, U, <laughs> JU-52, we're just going to say J in this case, uh, 3MG4E commercial aircraft. Registered as HB-HOT, 
HBHOT, conducted as a commercial air transport operation under visual flight rules. Pilots A and B had been entrusted to to perform both flights, alternating their roles as commander or pilot flying and co-pilot or pilot monitoring. Pardon the interruption. When we're recording the show live, the only person who can hear me is Captain Jeff. Now he's decided to include my audio here in the post-show edit. Lucky you. Enjoy. Here's something important for my hall boxes here, Jeff. Okay. Um, I'm directing my attention (laughs) to something in the chat room. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, And S-U-S-T would be pronounced... Die Schweizerisch Sicherheitsunterschutzgestell. Yeah, I like SUSD well, better. That was a brave attempt. I think that was. Uh, well, you know, I have that's I have one full good. year of high school Germany under my belt. High school Germany. I mean German, Germany, not Germany. High school, <laughs> high school German. <laughs> Thumbs up from yeah, well, I Nailed up. it. Right. 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 I'm sure I nailed it indeed. I haul boxes is playing Steph's role. That's what she says. Yeah, absolutely. Nailed it. Passive aggressive. <laughs> Love it. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, little interruption. I think that was worth it. And now I just have to figure out where I was. Okay. Switzerland's, and I'm not going to pronounce that again, S-U-S-T, released their final report. Concluding the problem. Oh, I was going to mention that in the really, really nice little video that the SUST put together, kind of an explanatory video of the accident. They talked about the fact that uh, both the captain and um, co-pilot, both pilots here were previous military pilots, and then they were also previous airline pilots. So kind of like Nick and I, if we ended up, you know, doing one of these tour it's nice, nice little retirement one. gig. There you go. They were in their early sixties. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm, had a lot of us flying, flying a and you know Ju fifty two around. Uh, yeah. on your you know your le- leisurely days. Yeah. Awesome. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it didn't yes. go very well. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the direct cause on the final report: the accident is attributable to the fact that after losing control of the aircraft, there was insufficient space to regain control. Thus, the aircraft collided with the train, uh, the uh, terrain, I should say. Not There wasn't a train involved. Like, choo-choo. <laughs> uh, the investigation identified the following direct causal factors of the accident. The flight crew piloted the aircraft in a very high-risk manner by navigating it into a narrow valley at low altitude and with no possibility like of an alternative flight path. The flight crew chose a dangerously low airspeed as regard to the flight path. Both factors meant that the turbulence, which was to be expected in such circumstances, was able to lead not only to a short-term stall with loss of control, but also to an unrectifiable. I don't think I looked that word up. I thought unrectifiable. I don't think there's such a word, and there isn't. Uh, so a not rectifiable situation uh, directly contributory contributed <laughs> contributory factors. The investigation identified the following factors as directly contributing to the accident. The flight crew was accustomed to not complying with recognized rules for safe flight operations and taking high risks, just like Nick and I would do, I'm sure. Uh, The aircraft involved (laughs) in the accident was operating with a center of gravity position that was beyond the rear limit. Ooh, that's not good. Ouch. That's never good. Yeah. This situation facilitated the loss of control. 
Systemic cause. The investigation identified the following systemic cause of the accident. The requirements for operating the aircraft and commercial air transport operations with regard to the legal basis applicable at the time of the accident were not met. Uh, Some other systemically contributory factors. The investigation identified the following factors as systematically, uh, systemically contributing to the accident. Due to the air operator's inadequate working equipment, it was not possible to calculate the accurate mass and center of gravity of its JU-52 aircraft. In particular, the air operator's flight crews who were trained as Air Force pilots seemed to be accustomed to systematically failing to comply with generally recognized aviation rules. Ooh. And, <laughs> and to... Uh, that, yeah, old military man, pilots are like that. Bank. Don't ever um, employ one. Smackdown on the yeah. Swiss Air Force over here. I know. And to taking high risks when flying JU-52 aircraft. The air operator failed to identify or prevent both the deficits and risks which occurred during operations and the frequent violation of rules by its flight crews. Numerous incidents, including several serious incidents, were not reported to the competent bodies and authorities. That's why they're pissed off. Uh, This meant that they were unable to take measures to improve safety. The supervisory authority failed to to some extent to identify the numerous operational shortcomings and risks or to take effective corrective action. It was just a mess, basically. Um, This wasn't definitely (laughs) looks to me like an accident just waiting to happen. They said the aircraft was in poor technical condition and was no longer able to achieve the originally demonstrated flight performance. So you have an airplane out there with passengers that probably paid a lot of money. I don't know if it ever said in here exactly um, how much this would have been, but a two-day tour in this historic aircraft, and they're you know flying over the Alps in a couple different places, and this was the return to uh, Dubendorf, north of the Alps. And they're kind of going through this flight path. I guess they say that they've done this in the past, but the terrain is just rising with them as they're climbing toward the top of this peak. And uh, mm. yeah, if you'll if you see the uh, the video, you'll just kind of shake your head and and see that as they continue to make their way toward the peak of the of this portion of the Alps, and the terrain is rising. They keep raising the nose, the pitch of the aircraft, and the airspeed continues to drop off. And the uh, angle of attack ends up, uh, you know, get, getting into into that critical area. And then, of course, the the fact that the center of gravity was out of the envelope, the safe operating envelope, that just made it even worse. And they just didn't have any altitude to recover the aircraft once it uh, started the stall. And uh, that was it. Very yeah, they just had everything working against them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Bad position to be in, absolutely. And there was nowhere for them to, I mean, they got themselves into that kind of a box canyon or, you know, whatever, sucker hole or whatever you want to call it, where there was no room for the aircraft to you know, like make a 180 turn and uh, go back. It was like, that was it. No, no that's actually right. Uh, I mean, uh, we had that happened to uh, an aircraft um, you know, on our squadron when I was out in Australia. Uh, we also had a forward air control unit, and uh, one of them made a mistake and got himself in a box canyon um, in a blind valley mm-hmm. and got himself into this situation where he was trying to uh, – the ground was out climbing him, and eventually he tried to turn and get out of it, but uh, – uh, you know, he just ran out of airspeed and stalled, uh, which is kind of more or less what happened here, mm-hmm. I suspect. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, by the sounds of it, these guys were getting quite used to just playing ad lib 
you know, or you know, not paying proper attention to the the conduct of the flight. You know, doing things in a very ad hoc manner and not really um, cross dotting all the i's and crossing the t's, so, which is a bit of a shame because since they were both ex- very experienced pilots and should have known better. Yes. Yeah, I agree. On the video, I'm showing some of the photos that came with this accident report, and uh, you can see that a passenger was taking um, some photographs while they were uh, making the in this last portion of the flight. And then there's a graphic here that kind of superimposes the aircraft uh, against the Google Earth view of this uh, beautiful peak in the Alps here, but uh, they just uh, ran out of airspeed and ideas, I guess. Yep. Yep. Their bucket of luck ran out. Neil says, yeah, very good. I mean, very bad actually. All right. Well, the idea is you're supposed to fill your bucket of experience before your bucket of luck runs out. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You would think that would have been overflowing with rimmings. Yeah, exactly. Right. Wow. Good point. Nick. Um, Some people just never learn that. So, mm -hmm. well, you know, we've done this before and it worked before, so it must be okay. Why wouldn't it work this time? Exactly. All right. Well, our next item here is, um, I I need to play something here. Um, I had it all set up to why the chameleon isn't the same color as this guy's skin. Mm, That's a good question, Liz. Uh, Okay, here we go. Come, 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 come. I messed that up. (laughs) You come and go. You come and go. You forgot to put the makeup on. Yeah, uh, it's just not the same, (laughs) is it? That was probably (laughs) it. Austrian authorities stopped a man at a Vienna airport as he tried to smuggle 74 protected chameleons from Africa into the country. They said in a statement Friday that a 56-year-old man who is not further identified had hidden the animals in socks and empty ice cream boxes when he was caught at customs control in Vienna. He had traveled to Austria from Tanzania via Ethiopia. The chameleons were taken to the Austrian capital's Schönbrunn Zoo, uh, which said that the th- that three of the animals did not survive. All of the animals were from the Usambara Mountains in Tanzania. Let me try that again. Usambara Mountains in uh, Tanzania and ranged in age from one week old to adult animals. On the black market, they would sell for about 37,000 euros, about 45,000 U.S. dollars, officials said. That's a lot. Yes. That's a lot. Uh, So that particular one in the picture was in uh, green and brown stripy socks. Yeah, must have been. <laughs> must have been. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to work out how they spotted them because. And why is it not the I mean, color of the guy's invisible. hand? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, Nick. I, I talked mean, all over you. They'd normally be invisible, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You say that again because I just talked all over you. <laughs> that's right. I was trying to work out how they spotted them because, I mean, they'd all be invisible normally, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. I don't know. Although I'm not surprised in uh, in uh, Vienna, Vienna they're very very thorough. I remember I was uh, I was uh, uh, 
commercial and through Vienna one time to go pick up an airplane somewhere. Well, and they found was. your giant panda. And they found my chameleons, and actually, <laughs> they uh, they t- they took away my little bottle of uh, of a hot sauce that I used to travel around with. So uh, yeah, that Vienna. Uh, I was uh, my, my food was very very bland for the rest of my trip. Yeah, um, fair. Rick's but, hot sauce uh, is made from ground up chameleons. Ground up chameleons, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, very good, mm. spicy. Yeah, he had to uh, pay a fine of up to six thousand euros. The Austrian finance ministry said in a statement, and then I added, "Apparently, this guy got a dose of karma." <laughs> karma chameleon. Nice. See how I just titled that? Nice. Yeah, that, that's like a it. pretty low fine compared with the potential profit he was going to make out yeah. of smuggling these. Poor bloody creatures. So, no, I know. Yeah. Huh. Although, in the pictures, I don't see any bloody ones, so. Oh, no, that's uh, true. the British that's thing. Okay. No, I'm, I'm just thinking it's a, it's, a, it's a poor deterrent, really. Yeah. I mean, he thinks, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make that money back in my next smuggling venture. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, um, the, and probably just me, um, is that this, the chameleons that I've seen here in the United States are all these little tiny skinny looking things. This thing is kind of a, a big puffy guy. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they're like that in Africa or something. I don't know. Damn, I, don't know. I knew I'd be Could the be. only one interested in that. Okay. Um, let's move on. <laughs> a new startup luxury airline is launching flights next month with a private jet-like plane. Uh, oh, I, I should say, it is a jet. Private jet. I was going to say jet-like. A private jet-like plane. <laughs> okay. Here's a closer look at AERO, Aero. Um, Aero is the U.S.'s newest airline starting flights between Los Angeles and Aspen, Colorado on Ooh. February 4th. The leisure-focused luxury airline aims to offer a radically better premium leisure travel experience. Prices start at $990 one way for February flights, rising to $1,250 U.S. in March and April for flights on private jet-like plane. The pandemic has shifted travel for trends and favor of leisure flying and airlines have been eager to accommodate aero is a new leisure airline launching its first flights on february 4th after a successful european debut in 2020 have you heard of these uh, folks over there in europe nick no okay. no not at all i mind you i'm not really uh take, paying much attention to that pit might know about them yeah but, maybe somebody uh, in the audience will. i'm just trying to work out the price there i mean if you happen to be the only passenger does it mean you can do it for Get your own aircraft for nine hundred and ninety dollars. So. That seems very I think cheap. It's just the seat. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. In which case, you're not really very private. No. If you're no. And, and that and it's a that looks like a Nier JL is a one forty five. It's a one thirty five. A one thirty five. Okay. Yeah. So it's not ERJ like it. Uh, it's not like it'd be a roomy. Well, here's a picture of the inside of the Aero Embraer ERJ one J one thirty five. Um, and basically, it's just two seats. Um, or a, a seat that is both a window seat and an aisle seat, <laughs> and then there's aisle and then the other seat. So uh, just uh, sixteen, I think it said. Let me see. I'm trying to remember exactly how many seats on this. Not a lot of seats. No. Uh, but yeah, you don't. You're not going to get the. Well, I guess Nick, if you were the only one <laughs> on the flight, then, it'd be very private. <laughs> yeah, and then you would be actually only paying nine hundred ninety dollars one way. 
for a private jet flight by yourself. But I have a feeling that there'll probably be some others with you. Yeah, that, I see later on they describe it as quasi-private. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that true of any flight? If you're the only one yeah. on it, it's a private jet. That is true, Liz. If, you, if you're the only one on a big airliner, and that's happened before, we've talked about it oh, on the yeah. show, uh, then basically it's a private jet flight for you in a very big airplane. You know, um, So, yeah, it's a good-looking airplane, and... Uh, let's see. Every window, every seat is combined window and aisle seat where middle seats are non-existent for maximum social distancing. I'm sure that's why they did that. Uh, mm-hmm. Lighting and sound system also, that was sarcasm, uh, serves to give the tried and true jet a modern feel. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the article goes on and interviews the, uh, I believe the CEO of this company, um, Sub- submarine man. man. Sub- submarine man. <laughs> I don't think that's the yeah. way it's pronounced. Oh, okay. Sorry. Subramanian. Subramanian. I don't know. Um, I thought he might have some underwater things as well. <laughs> All his financial uh, holdings are. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Whoever you are out there, if you're listening. <laughs> yes, yes. Please. We can't afford the, the legal fees. So please don't sue us. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Arrow wasn't a product of the pandemic having launched in 2019, but its business model lends itself well to the new realities of travel. Uh, Subramanian Manian is hoping to ride that wave of pent up demand to fuel the business pointed to trends in the wake of economic downturns. And that demand for travel is coming from leisure travelers. We actually launched in Europe last summer and we were shocked by the amount of demand that there was. And that was after the first lockdown. So you can only imagine after this sort of second extended lockdown what demand is going to look like. Uh, let's see. With offices, I, still- I love the color scheme. Yeah, it's very. Uh, yeah, I love yeah, it. It's a good looking plane. Yeah, it is. black with I like a the few yellow orange trim. trim. It's very, yeah. very nice. Or, or orange looks very nice. And I like yeah. the passengers too. I like the way they look. <laughs> you can't afford to get a seat on that one, Jeff. I'm uh, sorry. Those are big seats. <laughs> In that previous well, uh, photo, I think they get small models. Oh, uh, maybe she's them, like so a teeny tiny person. They... <laughs> it's Thumbelina. Oh, perhaps I'm being a bit cynical. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, if you want to read more about this company, uh, please check out the show notes. I want to go to Aspen. Yeah. So if you want to fly from LA to Aspen, there you go. Tell us about it. Send us some feedback. Let us know how that yeah. went. Yeah. You want to go skiing? Yeah. Where to go? Yeah. All righty, let's move on to item D. It was an incident. It was an an EAT, uh, an EAT, Leipzig Airbus A three hundred six hundred freighter, on behalf of DHL Registration Delta Alpha Echo Alpha India, performing flight eight forty one from Brussels, Belgium to Vitoria, Spain, was ex- uh, no. No, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just oh. saying, I, I love Vittoria. We used to take horses into Vittoria. Oh, beautiful place. Sounds there. like a nice place. I've never been there. Oh, yeah. I've only been to Madrid. Is it anywhere near Madrid? Uh, a little ways. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they were accelerating for takeoff from Brussels runway 25 right at about uh, 1811 local time when the crew rejected takeoff at high speed, approximately 150 knots over the ground. The aircraft slowed and stopped on the runway about 360 meters or 1,200 feet short of the runway end, about 2920 meters slash 9,600 feet after the start of the takeoff roll. However, it was disabled with deflated main tires. 
Emergency services responded and attended to the Are you intentionally screen sharing? Or? Yes. Oh, hang on. Okay. Yep. Yes, Liz, I am intentionally okay. screen sharing. Okay. I just, I'm trying yeah. something different. I should have okay. mentioned that Got to it. you before we start, no, start no. the show. Okay. Um, actually, I was going to screen share because a lot of these things have photos in them, and I just thought it would be easier just to do it like no, this. No, that's fine. Okay. That's yeah. All right. Back to this. Um, uh, where was I? Okay. The runway returned to service. Uh, at around 4.31 local time in the morning, about 10, a little over 10 hours after the occurrence. The airport reported following a technical incident, runway 25 right has, has not been available. Runway 19 is used for departures, runway 25 left for landings. Belgians AAIU opened an investigation into the occurrence. The airline reported the crew encountered difficulties to take off, prompting them to reject takeoff during rotation when the nose gear had already become airborne. Well, they had already rotated. At that point, the crew checked their airspeed. It was still slow enough to reject takeoff. Due to the heavy braking, eight tires deflated. Hang on a minute. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hang on a minute. That, that don't add well, up. Well, one comes before rotating. No, no, no. no. Last, last I checked. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. check again when I go flying uh, whenever they activate me. But uh, yes, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one, Nick. Nothing. Rotate V1. <laughs> <laughs> it actually goes V2, VR, yeah. V1. I think. Yeah. Uh, well, uh-huh. Sorry, Jeff. Do carry on. No, I know. I was confused, too. I thought you would enjoy this. On uh, December 3rd, uh, 2020, last year, the Belgium AAIU stated the crew reported a, nor- a normal acceleration of the aircraft during the takeoff roll. During rotation, the nose did pitch up. However, the aircraft did not lift off. The crew rejected takeoff, applied reverse thrust, and brought the aircraft to a stop between taxiways A6 and A7. The occurrence was rated a serious incident and is being investigated. Just a point of or a note here. Uh, an aside, um, one of the things that I brief that after V1, the only reason we're going to abort a takeoff is if, if we don't think the airplane's going to fly. And apparently, maybe they kind of felt they were in this situation. The uh, the aircraft nose did come up, but the aircraft did not lift off. And I'm not sure exactly how hard they tried to get it to lift off but well let's continue i think maybe we'll find out some more information. i just and just before we go on i just yeah. i just have one question here i'm wondering how they were able to gauge uh or report normal acceleration what is because um, what is what uh-huh. is so that's why we always i mean i always go back to that um to that the bit of information uh that um um check airman passed on to me um so from the moment i uh, select takeoff thrust to the moment i get to 80 knots you must have, as a maximum, uh, 20 seconds elapse. So under uh, balance field theory, if you get to 80 knots, you should get to 80 knots at 20 seconds. Now, a lot of times, not a lot of times, but basically all the time, uh, takeoff uh, calculations as far as uh, thrust required based on your weight and conditions are very, very conservative. So you'll get to 80 knots before 20 seconds. So that's what. I've always used to gauge what accel- proper acceleration should be. And this works for any airplane because the relationship between thrust and weight is proportional to the plane that you're flying, right? So from takeoff thrust being selected to 80 knots, it should be no more than 20 seconds. And that is a gauge of proper acceleration because otherwise, what is proper acceleration? It's, it's, it's open to interpretation. Right. 
So, how does that vary with um, airfield altitude? Uh, Rick, do you have a fudge factor for that? If you well, I mean, because uh, well, I mean, if 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 you look at it, um, as you go up in altitude, density altitude increases, and so the um, the amount of power that the engine puts out is directly proportional to the air density, and so your your acceleration is going to be slower. But uh, but but you account for that, right? I mean, the, the your your is if if you're taking off from a higher density altitude airport. Then obviously you're not going to be able to take off with the same amount of weight that you would at sea level or at lower altitude airports, right? And so that kind of you know it, it it works itself out as you go up in altitude, thrust decreases, and the uh, and the uh, amount of weight that you can carry obviously decreases as well in relationship to the amount of thrust that's available based on the runway and the conditions and the wind and all that stuff. So no matter where you are, eighty knots to twenty seconds works. Every time, and if actually that it saved my bacon one time coming out of Quito, I rejected a takeoff because the acceleration was very, very sluggish. Rejected at about a ninety knots. I came back around and had him take the freight off the plane, and we were close to ten tons overweight. Whoa, huh. yeah. that's a little overweight. Yeah, mm-hmm. Hmm. So. uh the airplane yeah, no, I, mean, I was just thinking that, and only by my own experience, in that takeoff rolls always take a lot longer yeah. when you're in you know, a Joburg or, uh, you know. Oh, no, no, I mean, but like it's, that. but uh, next year, it's, it's going to be 80, I mean, it's 80 knots at 20 seconds every time. And, and, you know, in the, in the, you know, 15, 16 years that I've been flying airliners, it's, it, I've, I've, it's, yeah, it's I mean, don't get me wrong. Time. I used to use a similar thing. Um, yeah, you, I think you used to use 100, right? Yeah, it was 30 yeah. seconds to 100. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it would have to be a very big error for me to use that as a rejection uh, cue because uh, it's, you know, our company didn't employ that as a formal check. It was a mm. private thing that I did. So All right. The, the trade, the company would look to me and said, well, show me in the flight manual where it says that you can do that and judge a rejection on it. Right. And I, I mean, I tell you, I mean, there was, there was a bit of paperwork involved and obviously a, a, <laughs> yeah. they talked with the, with the chief pilot. But, but then again, you go back to, um, uh, you know, the, the, all the process of unloading everything and finding out that you were indeed overweight. Oh, yeah. I think and, you've and obviously some, made a great and, decision. And, and some heads mm-hmm. did roll, yeah. you know. And uh, I mean, the airplane, the airplane would have flown fine. It's just that, I mean, these, these things are, these numbers are so conservative that even overweight, the airplane will fly. The problem is, is that, uh, what happens if you have uh, an, an engine issue or or some yeah. other kind or of or a dragging brake or, or exactly that's, or something yeah. that's going to that's going to um uh, compromise your 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 second segment climb yeah. uh, and Absolutely. then you find yourself you know up the yeah. creek with no paddle and so yeah. uh, uh that's what we did so it, it, it i i have done it in the sim i rejected uh, of just for this exactly thing the guy gave me a dragging brake mm. i looked at the clock and went this isn't right stop Exactly. Uh, right. And the guy said, "Yeah, good decision." Well, how did you judge that? When I said, "Well, I time it," and he said, yeah, "Okay, that's that's good. Cool. Carry on." Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, yeah, yeah, we're just given the parameter as you know, unusually slow acceleration. Well, what? But yeah. there's nothing that says exactly. There's no. Unusual. I mean, how do you gauge it? What, <laughs> what's almost the like seat of the pants? Exactly. Like this doesn't feel right. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly right. So you know, eighty knots, twenty seconds every time. It'll never fail you. 80 knots, 20 so, seconds. So what did this guy do wrong then, Jeff? Well, 
let me continue then. Thank you for that wonderful segue, Nick. <laughs> On uh, the January 28th, 2021, Germany's BFU reported in their November bulletin that the aircraft was accelerating, acceler- <laughs> was accelerating for takeoff when the crew felt vibrations just prior to V1. The aircraft increased pitch upon rotation but did not lift off, prompting the captain to reject takeoff. The aircraft came to a standstill on the runway as a result of the heat developed by the brakes. All the main tires deflated, which is their design to do that, by the way. The BFU assists the investigations in accordance with ICAO Annex 1313, representing the state of registry. On the 29th of January, 2021, the Aviation Herald received information that the standard operating procedure at the operator require to turn the trim to plus 1.0 trim units, one unit nose up, after landing. In the morning, before the incident flight, maintenance worked on the aircraft and rolled the trim to minus 1.1 units, so 1.1 units nose down. The load sheet computed a trim setting of plus 1.1 units for departure. While the load sheet used the plus and minus notation, the trim itself only shows up and DN for down. Both plus 1.1 and minus 1.1 units are within the green band of the trim settings for takeoff. The crew thus missed that the trim was at minus 1.1 or negative 1.1 units instead of the required plus 1.1 units and experienced a very high pitch force during takeoff rotation. That makes sense. It was, what, 2.2 degrees? or 2.2 off. off. Um, The pitch trim is only checked once during working the pre-departure and takeoff checklists. Shortly before V1, the crew experienced vibrations, drawing the crew attention to the engine parameters. Being above V1 and VR, there was time pressure and decision-making. Post, (laughs) on my airplane, there's usually not any time at all between those two numbers <laughs> yeah um, i think you call them you call them together right as v1 vr yeah v1 rotate uh post non-flight examination did not find any technical anomaly in simulations it was determined that all pilots exposed to the simulation felt significantly higher pitch forces in this scenario most crews were not aware of the effects of the wrong trim setting and so we have some pictures here yeah um so here we go that's 1.1 down on the um, stab trim uh, setting or dial or whatever you want to call it. Um, And then this next photo is 1.1 up. And so the only difference here between the two, well, the numbers are in a different order, but um, the one down on the top photo is where it was set. And it was supposed to be set like this at 1.1 up. And uh, here's a picture of the aircraft after rejecting the takeoff. Doesn't really show much except that it stopped on the runway. And uh, here are some emergency crew uh, spraying the uh, hot overheated brakes and tires. And uh, there, there you go. So that's what happened. It was mistrimmed and mistrimmed, it was yeah. missed. And uh, people usually ask, you know, why is it that tires deflate um, after, you know, you, you slam on the brakes, particularly after a, um, a rejected takeoff. You know, these, these, uh, these tires have what are called fusible plugs, which are these plugs, these metal plugs that uh, melt at a lower temperature than that is required for the tire to blow up or explode. And so to prevent that from happening, once the brakes get to a certain temperature, these plugs will 
melt and let the nitrogen out to prevent the tire from uh, from exploding. So that's, uh, that's why that happens. Probably worth also mentioning that um, the trim uh, actually moves the uh, the main stabilator at the back of the aircraft, uh, the uh, entire tailplane. And as such, uh, you know, it's actually a really powerful pitching force you get from setting that tailplane in the wrong position compared with the elevators, which is just a section of it tagged on the back. And that's what you're going to control when you pull the yoke back on this uh, A300. You're going to move the elevators, but that would be quite easily countered if you had enough um, trim force in on the, that big, great big uh, stabilator, which would provide a, an awful lot of aerodynamic force sufficient to overcome the elevators. Um, the the uh, Airbus, that trim wheel is this, more or less the same as uh, the aircraft that I used to fly, Jeff. Uh, and um, the way they show those pictures there, that you've kind of got a completely dark cockpit and you're only looking at the internal lights. When you're setting the cockpit up, you've got the overheads on and you can see those numbers, plus and minus, or, or up and down very easily whereas they make it look like there you can only really see a small portion of it whereas in reality you see a big area of it and i think it'd be quite hard to uh, miss if the lights are up um and the other thing of course is they say you only check it once well you do only actually do a a trim check once but of course the guy's got to set it so uh, they're actually going to look at this twice at least so once when the guy gets the trim setting and actually sets it on the trim wheel that'll be a duty he does in his pre-flight you know cockpit setup Uh, and the other will be when you run through the checklist and check the trims at the correct position so you know, I'm now, quick question, uh, uh, Nick. Uh, hmm. you know, I've, I've never flown an Airbus. Now, is it is it uh, is a procedure for for uh, for Airbus uh, drivers to uh, set the trim prior to the hydraulics being uh, selected on, or is it something you do post uh, the hydraulic system being pressurized? Uh, normally, well, most. Of- the airplanes I flew, the trim set itself. So <laughs> you dialed it into the uh, performance box, and uh, after engine start, the trim wheel moved itself to the takeoff setting. Oh wow! Okay, uh, but, uh, but I mean, th- to- th- this this being an older, an older, an older yeah, airplane, I think this one probably yeah. didn't you know, akin do that. to akin to a a a a seven six, for example. If you yeah, you would you would do it, as from memory, you did it in the after start. Uh, actions okay. so yeah, after same. start you know you all got up three or four things to do one of which was uh, usually the in my, my aircraft i think the co-pilots the first officer's job was to set the trim uh, and or check the trim what had moved to its correct setting because when you've got an automatic system you don't just ignore it and hope that it's gone to the right place someone actually has to check that it's gone to the right place um, and if it hadn't we used to tweak it you know because uh, you know that's that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the interesting thing about this trim here is that, uh, well, I mean, yeah, we're, we are we are trimming because the reason why you trim is that you trim for an airspeed, right? And what are we doing? What airspeed are we we trimming for when we set the stabilizer prior to takeoff? And that is uh, at least the airplanes that I've flown. You're trimming for a V two. You're you're trimming for a V two speed, which is your 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 uh, your engine out safety speed, which is a speed that allows you to climb uh, safely out without uh, 
without uh, one of the engines being, uh, you know, you're flying three engines only if it's a seven four or two en- or one engine only if you're flying a twin. So that's that's what you're trimming for a V two. So if something happens, you're already trimmed for that airspeed. So uh, it's uh, you know takes that off your hands there. But uh, excellent, yeah. So that's that's kind of kind of what we what we have there. Very cool. Yeah, just a human factor error overlook. You know, there just happened to be. You know, what are the chances? Um, you know, you're expecting to see 1.1. You look down, you see 1.1. Well, yeah, absolutely. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I could, I could definitely see. But unless the, you're going to call them apples in positive and bananas in negative, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to tell the difference between one up and one down. That's yep, and it, part of the job. And uh, apparently, if they just continued to use pressure to, you know, rotate the uh, the airplane, it probably would have you know, rotated off the runway and flown. Okay. And then they probably would have immediately yeah. adjusted the trim based on the, the feels yeah. on the uh, pressure. Or the, but I think that was, there's, there's that startle factor involved with the vibration, you know, and no, you yeah. don't know what's going yeah, but on. They and, don't explain what no. the cause of that was. Yeah. That's, they? that's so. what I was, yeah. That's what I was getting at here is like, yeah. you know, what, what, why would it vibrate? I mean, I guess one thing that comes to mind is, is the, uh, you know, when, when you, when you rotate, sometimes the, the nose wheel tends to vibrate a little bit as it, as it, uh, as it yeah. leaves the runway. So that's, that's, that's one thing. Uh, but I, uh, I, I really can't think of anything else that would make the airplane vibrate. Um, no, likewise. So I'm beginning to think that, you know, they might've just, you know, think, well, it was vibrating. So we rejected it as well. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, they got lucky because anything after, uh, anything after V1, uh, it's obviously the, the, one of the main factors that you that you take into account when figuring out what your go no go speed is is the available runway. You know, make sure you have enough runway to stop. Um, and even even if you have a very very long runway and a very low V one speed, obviously you know you, you might technically be able and as as this airplane demonstrated, technically be able to uh, abort a takeoff above V one. But another factor that's taken into account when figuring out V1 is um, the capability of the brakes to absorb the energy to stop the airplane within the runway. And so you might have the runway, but you might not have the brakes to stop within the available runway. And in this case, it it, it worked, uh, thankfully, but uh, it may not always work. Okay, very good. Well, anything else to say before we move on to the next item? All right. No, sir. Um, this is an easy fly ATR 42 in Columbia. And I put it not so easy, huh? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so we to fly. Yes. have a, uh, video clip of an ATR 42. Hang on. Don't play it yet. Um, uh, an ATR, uh, 42 approaching the jetway in uh, this, uh, city in Columbia, uh, Rick, uh, Bucaramanga. Bucaramanga, very nice. Polonegro Airport. Okay. Uh, it's right there I'm in that. To, uh, it won't. Uh, oh, you can't it's read It's in it. Colombia, if that helps. Yeah. yeah. It's in that yeah, <laughs> country that of one. Colombia. Okay. Bucaramanga, Polonegro Airport. Yep. There we go. Um, I, I, you didn't say it quite as well as I did, but okay. Well, well I'll, I'll have to practice my <laughs> yeah, Spanish. You need to practice yeah. your, your native language. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right, so uh, Liz, why don't we uh, look at the uh, video? Got your mic ready to mute. I do. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Okay. So the airplane's coming in, coming in, and 
the air crew is, uh, or the ground crew is going, what, what, what's going on here? What's going on? They're running away, if you can't tell. They are indeed, <laughs> and I don't blame them. I don't blame them either. <laughs> so uh, this ATR-42 uh, sustained a little bit of damage um, as it, if, for the life of me, I cannot figure out what this captain was thinking as it was approaching the gate. I mean, do, does he not realize that, I'm, I'm wondering if they fly at like ATR-72s that are a little bit longer fuselage, and maybe he just thought that the engine and the wing was further back and as he was approaching that jetway you know i was thinking yeah there's no way we're going to hit that thing <laughs> well he my question it. is where the hell were the wind walkers and the uh, and the marshal? they were running away man didn't you hear them <laughs> <laughs> That's right. you know? i don't know i mean presumably i mean it looks like he's on a center line so assuming he's on the correct center line bearing in mind that People may not know that parking positions sometimes have several center lines. You know, you can have a yeah, yeah. your gate center, gate left, gate right, big um, for different types or you know different usages. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so presumably he's on the right one. But that jetway must have been hugely close to him. You know, in his cockpit. How the and the jetway, of course. You one other thing you check as you. Coming into your parking position is that the wheels of the jetway are in the circle. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a circle painted on the ground, and the 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 driving wheels that maneuvers that great big um, tunnel around have to be inside that circle, indicating that it's in the proper park position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering, either the guy forgot to give him the stop, and he didn't bother to look out of his window because it's not like you can't see the engine from his window can you i mean it's like it's right out it's right there yeah, i know i mean i couldn't see my own wingtips in the 340 because like about 100 feet in front of them well, so i'm wondering <laughs> it's, you know you, you mentioned the uh the, the wheels of the jetway in that circle uh, in this first photo here that i'm showing it looks like they actually are so it looks like the uh, jetway was pre-positioned correctly um, yeah, I'm yeah. wondering if, and it looked like he was, as you said, Nick, that he was right on the center line. I'm wondering if there was some kind of an issue with uh, the brake pressure or something, you know, when oh, you start yeah. to put the brakes right on, all of a sudden it just keeps on going. And maybe that's the point at which the... Because it looks like it doesn't slow down, does it? Mm-mm. Yeah. But you want to um, play that one more time, Liz? Okay. And if you guys want to say anything while it's playing, you have to unmute yourself. Yeah, it's it's hard to you know on that on that um, painted stripe that they were you know the center line that they're trying to keep the nose wheel on. There are usually um, markings there based on what airplane is going to be parked at the gate, and um, I can't tell. There's one photo here. Um, you can see right now uh, the one that I have uh, on the screen. It, I can't read. It's just not quite good enough for me to read exactly uh, which one may say the ATR-42, but whichever markings we're looking at right here, they're well behind uh, the nose wheel. (laughs) So that's what makes me think. I'm wondering if there was some kind of an issue with um, the brake. Lost his brakes or something. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I can I can make out uh, a a three eighteen on that one there, and yeah. I can see the one that's uh, oh the the oh actually, 
Look at uh, he's passed. He's passed where he was supposed to stop. Mm-hmm. You see the cone? Yeah. The traffic cone says ATR. Oh, right there you go. It. Okay, that makes sense. So that would have been the mm-hmm. one where he's supposed to put his nose. That's well. where he's supposed to stop. So he didn't stop. So he was yeah. on the right you, line. You might want to scroll was... your picture, Jeff, because we can't actually see that on the screen. Oh, you can't. Your... I'm sorry. No, um, you need to scroll up onto the next well, the one, one that uh, he is referring to is the one that I have centered. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the one I'm okay. talking about. Right, right. There, right, right, right where the cone is, it says ATI right there. So it's uh, yeah. he's he's passed where you're supposed All to right. stop. Yeah, so it could be brake failure. We we might be being uh, rude. Yeah, you should have yeah. got the props into reverse quicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get in the beta. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Well. well. I just saw that. Um, so the, the guys were running away from uh, the rabbit with the <laughs> yeah, the killer <laughs> rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Uh, you were, you, were, you know what? I was um, I was editing the last show, Nick, and I was I was very disappointed. I didn't realize it at the, at the time, but I was very disappointed that we were talking about uh, uh, the seal for the um, the sealant for the. Um, yeah, there you go. You should have done that on the on the sh- on that show when we yeah, said. I, know, I, know. I like it to be a surprise. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. It is surprising. It's a good thing you guys weren't uh, picnicking on that taxiway. Yeah. All right. Um, item F: FAA employee maliciously caused a communications blackout between ten planes and air traffic control over Hawaii, and. A former FAA employee has now former FAA employee has been sentenced to two years of probation and a five thousand dollar fine. Jolyn DeCosta has been charged with maliciously interfering with air traffic communications. Her actions resulted in a communications blackout while at least ten planes were airborne. The Department of Justice said a former Aviation Administration employee has been sentenced to two years to five thousand dollars, as we just mentioned. Um, it doesn't. It just says her whatever she did. It doesn't say what she did. <laughs> caused a communications blackout while at least ten planes were airborne. And they, do I, you, I believe uh, I'm not quite sure where I read it now. Um, I think when this first came through as uh, an email link, um, that she used a radio uh, herself to pass transmissions. Oh, a handheld. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, what kind of radio? I don't know. Okay. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, th- that might be something else because it's not no longer in the text what I read, but uh, I never I never uh, read I that on this article anyway um, that I have. There's here. there's an, there's an article with that I remember that uh, an article that that talked about specifically that not related to this to this event. Okay, but um, but oh, I uh, love that yeah. when journalists do that. Well, they you read about something and then they put like things that they think are related to this, but in many cases they really are not related at all it's because these people usually don't have any idea what they're writing about <laughs> when it comes yep, to yep. aviation you know we've never experienced that here never so she'd been working for the faa for 26 years and was an air transportation system specialist um i'm surprised you didn't you get jail time because i seem to remember yeah. we covered a similar story in australia mm-hmm and I'm pretty certain that bloke got sent away. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we have nobody seen them uh, him since. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's there's plenty of penal colonies around. Uh, They're Australia, really good right? at it there, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of practice. Okay, yeah. 
I um, it'd be interesting to hear what um, RH and AG would have to say about this on the uh, Opposing Bases podcast. Perhaps they've already talked about it. I don't know, but uh, hmm, not good. Um, it said about two minutes, a uh, total of two minutes. Uh, the pilots at the time were unable to hear directions from air traffic control, but I, I take little naps longer than two minutes. So that's not a big deal for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Item G Pakistan aviation regulator to outsource licensing exams. This is from Al Jazeera. You know, remember we talked, it was shortly after the crash. um, And um, in um, Karachi, right. uh, Last year, where they did an as part of their investigation into the accident, they started checking credentials of the uh, commercial pilots and airline pilots there in Pakistan, and found that uh, let's see, 262 pilots, or almost one third of all licensed Pakistani pilots, had obtained their credentials fraudulently. And a subsequent investigation by the Aviation Ministry found dozens of cases of wrongdoing in the licensing process. And 50 licenses had been canceled and 32 licenses temporarily suspended for lesser offenses. Um, Let's see. The claims by the aviation minister in June 2020 rocked the country's commercial aviation sector, causing widespread pilot suspensions both in Pakistan and abroad until credentials could be verified and prompting the United States to revoke authorization for Pakistan's national carrier to fly over there over the issue. And I think the EU, yep, uh, Air Safety Agency also suspended authorization for Pakistani airlines to use EU airspace over these and other safety concerns, partly for the lack of adherence to safety management system protocols. Um, the An Al Jazeera investigation found the existence of a widely known pay-to-pass system in place at the Civil Aviation Authority where pilots could pay officials to pass their examinations without ever having sat for them. That's a pretty cool system. Yeah, not huh? good. Nope. So, uh, I see that they're um, going to outsource their yes. licensing uh, to the United Kingdom Civil Aviation oh, Authority. Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> trouble. <laughs> I'm just. Uh, I I I wouldn't normally say this, of course, but uh, the campaign against aviation, as we term our Civil Aviation Authority, um, they are as hard nosed as you can get. So mm. you can be guaranteed that no one is going to be able to. Do a thing. No pay for passing. Oh, no, no so, pay for pass, huh? Okay. No, nah, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, I've tried it. But it doesn't. Doesn't. Work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you from experience. They yeah. shut it down I after. I had to Nick take all it. 14 damned exams. <laughs> Nick, be careful. I don't think the statute of limitations has uh, passed yet. So. <laughs> well, they could they could have my license now if they want. I'll, I'll give it back. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's good that they're. They're making some, you know, they're mitigating the the uh, problem by outsourcing the licensing now with the uh, CAA. What did you call it again? The uh, committee campaign against campaign aviation. against aviation. <laughs> that was Nick Anderson. Lives in lists. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Of course. All right, and finally, in our news segment, we have uh, this uh, long time. You'll remember D.B. Cooper, 727, back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't his door until after he did this (laughs) on Thanksgiving (laughs) Eve, 1971. 
And, um, oh, okay. Let's pause for a moment here. Let me see if we can find uh, Steph's uh, intro music. And here we go. All right. From her lakeside cottage in somewhere in Kakalaki. I'm not quite ready for this. Um, she's a doctor and uh, marathon runner and strength training training junkie and IPA connoisseur and a pilot, an astronaut, the and not, president not. of the United <laughs> States of America. It's Steph, Doctor Steph. Why well, I, I debate? I was just going to sit here and let you guys finish out the news because there wasn't much left, but I could not jump in for the DB Cooper ah. story. You had to Jump come in, in and ha, stick ha, ha. your nose in it, huh? Yeah, sorry to, to throw you off. And... <laughs> That's okay. You like doing that. Nice. I know you do. <laughs> Keeping you on your toes. Yeah. She probably wore a parachute. She'd be interested in that. Well, yes. Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Liz says, that you might be interested in here. Uh, this incident, because this gentleman, D.B. Cooper, uh, he has become uh, known as, um, was wearing a parachute in his little escapade on Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, a Northwest Orient Flight 305. And he was on a 727 and they stopped somewhere. Let's see. They landed in Seattle. The hijacker exchanged the flights. 36 passengers for the money, which uh, was uh, $200,000. Hey, it was 71. $200,000 went a long a way money, back yeah. then, I guess, in $20 <laughs> bills and four parachutes. And I'm not sure why he wanted four parachutes. Oh, I guess for the all the money and stuff, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, anyway, no, I think it was so he could pick one that uh, they wouldn't lick oh. them all. He could try some out in the aircraft and oh. see if they were going to deploy properly. Ah. Uh, so... If, okay. they were, if they were going to rig the parachutes, he could have made a, worked oh, it out, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, make sure they didn't have uh, anvils in them. I think you saw that on TV. <laughs> <sometimes>. <laughs> uh, can't, that's can't that's just the, the coyote. Parachute. Exactly, yeah. Acme Parachute. <laughs> Acme Parachute Company. <laughs> yeah, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I've I don't seen it. Either, some, <laughs> some coyotes done this before. <laughs> that's funny. Anyway, he was going to... F- head off to uh, Mexico City. And that's what they did in the 727 with all his money and his four parachutes. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, Mr. Cooper jumped from the rear door of the aircraft with a parachute and the ransom money. Uh, pilots landed the plane safety, but the identity of the hijacker and what happened next remains a mystery to this day. So um, one of the suspects is a gentleman named, uh, let's see, what's his name? Sheridan Peterson. Well, he just passed away. That's why we're talking about it right now. On January 8th, according to memorial website legacy.com, he was thought to possibly be the Dan Cooper who hijacked the Northwest Orient Flight 305. So he took the story to his deathbed with him. Yes, uh, he did take the story to his deathbed, apparently. Mr. Peterson was considered a chief suspect due to his experience as a smoke jumper a firefighter that parachutes into remote areas to tackle wildfires, and he had a love of skydiving. He served as a Marine during the Second World War and later worked as a technical editor at Seattle-based Boeing. Indeed, he wrote about possibly being D.B. Cooper in an article for the National Smoke Jumper Association's magazine, probably many, many years after this incident. Actually, the FBI had good reason to suspect me, he wrote. Friends and associates agreed that I was, a, without a doubt, D.B. Cooper. There were too many circumstances involved for it to be a coincidence. At the time of the heist, I was 44 years old. 
That was the approximate age Cooper was assumed to have been, and I closely resembled sketches of the hijacker. And there's a, a sketch of the hijacker and um, the uh, gentleman who uh, just passed away at age 94 in California. Very, very similar, I think. Um, or are these both sketches that were compiled by the passengers? I, I, th- I assume they were both sketches yeah. of Cooper. And he yeah, had a love for $20 bills. I don't, yeah. And what did you say? Uh, he had a love for $20 bills? Is that what you said? Yes, he was known to have a love for $20 bills. <laughs> oh, well, hmm, that's interesting, because all the money was in $20 bills. The mm-hmm. plot thickens. Um, yeah, so uh, Mr. Peterson is by no means the only person identified as D.B. Cooper. An HBO documentary released in 2020, last year, The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, which I didn't watch. Maybe I need to watch that. Profiled several contenders. Another theory is that Mr. Cooper did not survive when he jumped from the aircraft as he would not have been able to steer his parachute and was over a wooded area in unsuitable clothing and footwear. Uh, didn't even matter. Is this guy related to Greg Peterson? Um, oh, good point. Uh, Liz is wondering um, if there's any relation between this gentleman and uh, Greg Peterson, the big-ass fan guy. Mm. Good point. Um in 1980, a young boy found a rotting package of $20 bills totaling $5,800 with serial numbers that matched those of the ransom money lending credence to the theory that Mr. Cooper didn't actually survive the jump. So, I don't know. Didn't do a very good go. job spotting out the back of the aircraft, I guess. I guess not. Area. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it was like in the middle of the night, right? Very, very mm-hmm. dark. Um, yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay, that is it for our news segment. So that means it's now time for us to get to know each other and for you all to get to know us. And that's why we call the segment Getting to Know Us. Now we're just going to listen to the wonderful little piano being played. Ah, love that. The King and I, getting to know you. All right. Um, Well, Steph, I hate to just like you're gonna unscreen share now Jeff? oh i need to unscreen share yes thank you let me see if i can find that window i'm sure it's here somewhere um boom there we go now we can see everybody in living color um steph how have you been good if i could unmute myself um yeah i've been uh just busy um actually glad i was able to make it to the show this week i know this was kind of the only day that was really um one that would work for me so i'm glad it worked out for everyone else as well and i still almost managed to not get here (laughs) um not really to do with anything other than just usual work circumstances it was um very slow moving at the um surgery center this afternoon not from anyone's not um any one person's particular fault or anything it was just a combination of things and types of patients and circumstances and then i had some paperwork stuff that i needed to take care of right after work i thought i was just gonna be dropping off stuff and then it turned out i had a whole bunch of stuff to read through and sign as well so that took me yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) i mean i don't want to go into too many details about it but embarrassing Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no all good stuff all good stuff it's just stuff that unfortunately takes time and i don't have enough time right now um actually have tons of time but Hard to uh, fit all the things. Into Too many things to time. cram into that amount of time. Yeah, but um, yeah, everything else has been yeah. good. No, um, 
no flying this past week. Um, actually, weather was not great last weekend. Um, I did go up into the mountains for a brief bit, and we had maybe an inch or two of snow on Saturday afternoon. So it was nice to see some wintry precipitation this time of year. And then I was able to, well, actually it melted the next day, so that's that's fine by me as well. I don't really need snow to stick around around here. <laughs> no. It's it's nice to look at, but yeah, after you've looked nice at it, look for at. A it's few nice minutes, to look at it. It's nice to like leave in the mountains and go yeah. visit it when I want to go ski, and mm-hmm. I just don't need it in my life otherwise. Okay, very good. All right, anything else before we move on to the next contestant in the getting to know us segment? And that would be we're going to go with Nick next, Captain Nick. Uh, yeah. Um, no, nothing's been going on <laughs> yeah. at all. Thanks, no. Jeff. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, uh, there's been, uh, it's all been quiet here. Thanks very much. Uh, I, the, the only thing I'm going to say is, um, my next, uh, plane tale is going to be a sort of carry on from this one, which is about uh, excise red flag. Uh, if you took part in red flag, um, as a pilot or backseater, um, and you have a moment, um, perhaps you could get in touch uh, with me, perhaps email via uh, nick at airlinepilotguide.com. Um, and just uh, uh, if you'd be willing to chat for a little bit about, um, you know, your experiences. Uh, I'm just looking for a few anecdotes, really, uh, not a long chat. Um, but because it's only, you know, I've got a, a, about half a dozen guys uh, so far and uh, just... Uh, so if you have got a moment, uh, let me know. It'll have to be pretty damn quick. So uh, if it's um, gone past this weekend, uh, so today's Wednesday the 3rd, if it's gone past this coming weekend, then um, don't bother, please, because it'll be all buttoned up. Yes. All right. Very good. So hopefully out there, somebody will hear this and say, yeah, I've got a, an anecdote or two about Red Flag. Absolutely. I don't. Please. Never went to Red Flag. No. There's oh. really no reason for me to go to Red Flag. <laughs> oh, no, they, they had transports there. Not when I was. Well. I don't think we had, we didn't, mm, as far as I know, um, they didn't have do that in the in the, in the the early 80s. Maybe they did. No, I, I mean, I, I, did, I think mainly it was sort of C-130s, Special Forces, yeah, that makes sense. tankers, AWACS, that kind of stuff, but um, not much else okay. from the, the heavy side. All righty. Um, Rick, we missed you on the last couple of shows, and I know you've been very, very busy. Uh, why don't you fill us in? What's going on? Well, um, been uh, on the work side of things. I flew a couple of um, uh, old Dash 200s uh, out and backs from Cincinnati to uh, Houston and then back through Cincy over to Philly and then back through Cincy. That was nice. Um Got to fly the old girl around, um, hopefully the last time in a while, because uh, not that I don't like the Dash 200, but um, it just doesn't have a lot of the the, um, the comforts of a, of a 300, you know, the A cars and the uh, ability to get your clears via CPDLC, uh, control of pilot direct link um, communications and all that kind of stuff. And on the, on the old Dash 200s, you kind of have to do a lot more work. Uh, on all sides, really, even the maintenance side, because um, you have to. Uh, I mean, one of the things that we have to do is once we get to the top of climb, uh, you got to let about you know ten to fifteen minutes elapse until the engine parameters stabilize, and then you have to do what's called an engine snapshot. So you go and 
you press a button in the in the center panel and uh it it, it captures the uh, engine parameters at that point then you have to make a a logbook entry and then uh since the uh, airplane doesn't have a cars as i said after landing um the captain has to call operations to give them the off uh, and on times the fuel the uh, payload all that stuff that would otherwise be sent automatically via a cars so uh, old school in it man old school stuff mm-hmm. uh, but the flying was nice you know got to um got to spend um the night uh, not not the night the day and part of the night in philadelphia um, at this, uh, nice hotel right downtown, which was nice, uh, looked for a Philly cheesesteak, but I couldn't find one. What? <laughs> Believe it Boo. or not. I oh, know. Oh, oh, wait, what kind of hours are we talking about? We're talking uh, I, 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 we got in at, uh, <laughs> got in at seven thirty eight in the morning. I was in the hotel by nine and then I went to bed at 10, uh, woke up at Three in the afternoon, went to the gym from uh, about 3.30 to 5, and then uh, looked for something to eat around 6, so dinner time. Yeah. No and we're steak? supposed to fly, b- yeah, I was supposed to fly back out at uh, 10 that night. And um, you, you I, sure you were in Philadelphia? I can tell you, something's okay. going on in that place. <laughs> were they just closed? For, for a damn uh, cheese steak in Philly, couldn't find one. I don't know, I, I was able to find one back in May. Huh. Really? Yeah. So I, I I looked for I looked for 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 I went to two places actually they were both closed, and I got to the point where I was like, man, I just better I just better get something in here quick because uh, you know um, take um, uh, call time uh, show time sorry show time was at uh, eight thirty, and it was already about six forty five close to seven, and I still had to get back to the room and and you know do all my prep work for the for the night's flight and all that. So I figured, nah, yeah, screw it, I'll get just, all pretty you know, just, get, just get something else, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but did that and then, uh, got home and have been, uh, just working around the house a lot. Uh, we put, um, a new, uh, a new bathroom in. We finished, uh, we did epoxy flooring in one of the bedrooms. Uh, so that's looking really nice. Uh, had some of the, uh, drywall fixed and, uh, worked on the, f- uh, fix some of the fence, uh, fencing around the house. So it's been a lot of, you know, housework as well. Um, and then we got a little bit of snow in Phoenix the other day, which was nice. Wow. And so last uh, weekend, uh, we took, um, uh, the four by four out to the mountains and, uh, we went up, um, this one mountain, uh, and, uh, ended up at the, uh, well, right where there's a, a Doppler antenna used by, uh, Phoenix, uh, Phoenix, uh, Tracon, which was kind of nice. So it was, it was, it was really nice going up, you know, going up through the snow again to the top there again a beautiful view of the entire valley and then coming back down we uh ran into a father and a daughter who had been going up the mountain and then um they'd gotten out to walk around a little bit and the and the poor guy had fallen and slipped and slipped and fell and and the, and the keys to his truck fell out of his pocket but he didn't know it at the time so they go back to the truck and he couldn't get in because he was locked out Mm. And it was getting dark, and they needed a ride uh, down the mountain so they could go back home and pick up the spare and go get the truck the following day. So we just picked them up and took them all the way home. Um, oh, and nice. uh, yeah, and then that was that. And then headed out to uh, headed out to work. Uh, and now I'm sitting reserve here in Ontario until uh, Sunday. So, so uh, did you say you were like so, walking or hiking around um, some kind of an antenna? 
yeah on the on the mountain because you you do have the kind of a nice warm glow that you normally don't i know i know i was going for that uh for that uh (laughs) for that green fluorescence and i think it uh, it. i think it i think it suits me works yeah it works with your (laughs) complexion (laughs) all right so that's uh that's been it well that was very nice of you to give those folks a, a ride home yeah, it was really, really interesting. So apparently this guy, um, once we get to the bottom of the mountain and we still have a little small, small talk and, you know, what he does and all that. So he, he worked his entire life for, um, uh, doing, um, uh, construction. So he said he had a couple of construction contracts around Phoenix and then we pull into his house. Holy. <laughs> so he lived in what, what must've been, yeah. On the low end, a $15 million house. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> so a major coin. He did pretty good. There's a few he did projects pre- here and there, you know. It was, it was, cr- oh, yeah, you know, just, just, just something to, to, to yeah. keep the lights on, I guess. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we, we pull into his neighborhood and it's a beautiful neighborhood and, and, and North uh, Scottsdale, right up against a mountain there. Beautiful houses all around. I'm going. Well, you know, these are nice. I guess. Uh, I guess one of these is uh, one of these must be his. So we keep going further in and further in and further in. We keep going up the hill and up the hill and up the hill until we get to the very very end of the street. There's this palatial mansion. When he's like, oh, just drop me off right here. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> And here's ten thousand dollars for your trouble. <laughs> guy, guy pulls out a hundred dollars for our trouble. He's like, we 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 wouldn't take it, but yeah, he, right. he insisted. So he's like, I'm just going to buy you guys dinner. Thank you so much for driving me home. It's like oh, that's uh, really nice, so, nice. Uh, so that was nice. I, yeah. I bet he didn't bother go back for his truck. He just got another one out of the. <laughs> no, he just yeah, exactly. He just got another one. <laughs> he's like, it was really funny because he was he was talking he was talking about uh, um, going hiking in the mountains behind his house uh, on on our way on our on our way uh, while we were driving home. And he was saying that you know it's 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 a fun hike, but then uh, it's uh, you know it's yeah, sometimes we don't feel like uh, like hiking back down, so we just uh, you know we just we just uh, you know hire a helicopter to bring us. And I thought he was kidding. <laughs> Once we got to his yeah, house, right. I was like, well, he actually probably did hire a helicopter to uh, to bring him down from the top of the mountain down to his house. I'm sure he's got a helipad down there somewhere, you know, probably in his uh, in his in his pantry. So. Um, <laughs> But very, very nice, very nice guy down to earth. You know, very, very nice to see this. You know, his his young daughter uh, going to uh, going to college as well, and they had a little a little dog along with him. So uh, felt, I mean, I felt really bad, you know, leaving him. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said that uh, he tried uh, uh, two or three cars before us, and nobody would stop. So really? uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, how can you not stop? I mean, come on, it's getting dark. It's snowy outside. They're clearly cold. Yeah, and mm. it's that clear that they were up people. there hiking around, or might have had yeah. an issue or something. You know, that's, exactly, that's kind of different than. So, uh, so it uh, that was that made a new friend. So that uh, felt felt Excellent. good. Probably a good friend to have. The good Samaritan, yeah. yes, the good yeah. Samaritan. Resources. His will is being changed <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, did you give him all your information so he could change his will? And, uh, I did, I did, yeah. I did. Uh, <laughs> give him all my information, and uh, and uh, hopefully I'll be retiring here another uh, sure. couple of uh, months. Yeah, so, uh, nice. <laughs> all right, very, very cool. Um, since the last show, and, and we should point out that, uh, as you said, you're in Ontario, and you've made the uh, the the base change right now. So yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm uh, I'm out of Cincinnati for now. Um, well, hopefully till I go back to the seven four whenever that happens to be 
Uh, it's not that it's a bad base. It's a good base. There's a lot of variety as far as, uh, as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the places to go and all that. But, uh, uh, I tell you, um, my last commute out here when I came to work a couple of days ago, it was so nice. You know, you get on the airplane, it's an hour long flight. If that you land, you are, I'm literally 10 minutes away from the airport here, got to the hotel. So from, from the moment I left, uh, my house to the moment I got to the hotel here, it was inside of three hours, which is just oh, great. And, uh, and it'll be the same thing head back, you know? So, uh, you know, going to Cincinnati, it's always, especially, you know, post COVID, there's always some kind of, um, um, you know, changeover point somewhere, either, you know, Charlotte or Dallas or, or some other place. And those two leggers are just, man, just, going just through Charlotte long. sucks. Yeah. Exactly. Those people in Charlotte, <laughs> man. The worst. <laughs> so so now and then the cool thing about ontario is that's it's it's mostly hawaii flying so uh i'll be i'll be doing mostly just hawaii stuff which is oh, nice you know i like going out to the islands so uh, like you know some 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 uh, yeah. some things. continental u.s stuff but it's mostly hawaii stuff so uh looking forward to that nice well we look forward to hearing about it from you and living vicariously yeah. um all right um, between the last show and this show, I, let's see, I, I, I got to sing in my church again, um, on Saturday and Sunday. That was a lot of fun. Good to be back with the group. And, uh, then on Monday morning, headed out to the airport for a three day trip. Just got back today and I got to fly with my favorite co-pilot, uh, first officer Brent. Uh, he and I flew a bunch on the, um, on the mad dog and, uh, uh, so we were both brand new on this thing and we were wondering how that was going to go. And it went great because, you know, it didn't feel like, you know, you were, you're going to do something and you're going to get like that look from the person you're flying with who knows what they're doing. Uh, you know, none of that because neither <laughs> little, of us know. A little like. <laughs> no, we do. Hey, just to, eye, you know. just to be sure. Yeah. That right, people that understand. We are giving, uh, on complete. Twitter, Steph. We, what's that? Oh, Steph posted a picture of herself uh, looking uh, with her usual glare at the first uh, officer in uh, oh. Cessna 172. Uh-oh. And that was the look <laughs> I was thinking that. of. I don't think I was giving Armando that look. <laughs> yeah, I think you were. Well, yeah, I think that's you were giving okay. Armando that's just that your look. normal look. Okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's just, it's just my face. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, it was it was fun, and just uh, I want to make, uh, clarify: uh, both uh, Brent and I are completely and fully qualified and signed off by the uh, appropriate authorities at Acme Airlines. <laughs> so, we're, you know, if you happen to have a flight with us, don't worry. We, we know what we're doing. We know how to fly the jet. It's just that uh, there are little, you know, little subtleties and nuances that you pick up over, you know, flying an airplane uh, over months and years and we're not there yet. <laughs> so we're still, yeah. Um, you, you got your type rating in Pakistan, wasn't it? Jeff? Well, yeah. Shh, let's don't talk there about There's a little <laughs> bit of cash exchange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just went to the CAA, uh, you know, gets the hold of the situation here. I, uh, yeah. I don't know what, uh, yeah, the coffee yeah. fund has been kind of drained a little bit. Very useful. <laughs> pay for pass thing. But, uh, yeah, um, we had a good time and, uh, just did a, Let's see. We went up to somewhere and back. I just can't recall where. Oh, oh, Pittsburgh. Um, the um, the eastern U.S., mostly northeastern U.S. mainly, um, got hit by a, a pretty big winter snowstorm, 
and Pittsburgh was in part of that uh, that swath of snowy weather. And uh, but you know they know what they're doing there at Pittsburgh. They know how to clear the runways of snow. Of course, you know they were down to only you know one runway at times and uh, many many taxiway closures and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, to be you know you keep on your toes and make sure that you're using taxiways that are and it was it's kind of obvious you know the ones that are actually plowed and uh, they're <laughs> they're using and the ones that you can't see. Because it's covered with exactly. five feet of snow or whatever. But um, anyway, yeah, we uh, did some uh, de-icing um, because it was actively, it was a light snow. Uh, so we uh, got a chance, the opportunity to uh, de-ice there. But they did, a, again, as I said, these folks, they know what they're doing when they de-ice airplanes. And it didn't take long at all. And we were, uh, so we went up there and then came back to Atlanta to appreciate uh, Atlanta now it because a part of that system that was causing all that snow up there was causing a lot of winds here in Atlanta and Charlotte and uh, areas down here in the south and that was fun uh, because the, I think the the winds were gusting to like 30 38 or 39 but they were Ooh. offset enough and in this airplane that I'm flying now uh, the crosswind uh, limit for us is 38. Uh, but that's like a direct cross, and uh, this this was like a quartering crosswind, so you know uh, about sixty percent of that value. So you know we did our checks to make sure that we were not um, we were within limits. I think I think we calculated at the time that we were landing, um, the gust was gusting up between twenty six and thirty. So, uh, but it was great practice. Uh, really enjoyed. Uh, doing that and it was clear you know it wasn't snowing or anything else so uh, that was fun and then uh, we went to houston flew into houston hobby um, which was kind of fun because it's the smaller of the two airports there in the houston area serving the houston area for commercial aviation and uh, laid over there we sought for our uh, brent's the guy i fly with and we always get barbecue Every darn barbecue place was either closed, like only open for lunch, or for some reason they were closed and they weren't opening until Wednesday. So it's a conspiracy definitely going on with the cheese steaks in Philadelphia. The great barbecue in Texas. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in the world. It must be a thing against APG crew members. I don't know. That's exactly what it is. It must be it. It's against us directly. I guess. I don't know. So we ended up eating in the darn hotel. Bar, sports oh, bar. Come thing. on, you do better uh, than we that. Had, but we had brisket tacos, so we sort okay. of had barbecue. Uh, yeah. I know, uh, not exactly. And then uh, we uh, flew to Atlanta and then Charlotte. And and as Steph mentioned earlier, these people in Charlotte are just horrible. I mean, they're just mean Awful. and the worst. Yeah, they are. And uh, no, the people at the hotel are really. We stay downtown at the hotel, a Holiday Inn downtown. Really, really wonderful people there. I think I mentioned before that the restaurant that's actually in the hotel there, Forcaccia or something like that, um, or Forchetta. It's some kind of a play on the word with fork in it. It's an Italian place. But the chef, his name is Chef Luca, and he um, was on the Food Network's uh, show called Chopped, mm-hmm. and he was a Chopped oh, you know, champion. Say. Yeah. So, um, he, um, runs that restaurant there. Uh, unfortunately dining still not open there, but you could, you could buy something to take to your room or whatever. Uh, but instead of doing that, we wanted, we didn't want to just get something to go and like eat in our respective rooms. We wanted to spend time with each other. So we just went out the hotel, turn, turn left. And there's a place called Mertz, uh, 
Mertz. I was going to um, ask, did you go to Mertz? Soul? That's, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been there. It's great. It's That's, that's literally where, where the hotel soul. is, Steph. It's like, yep, uh, right next door. And mm-hmm. it was great. And I had. It's fantastic. I had ribs, barbecue ribs. And so you uh, just had that hand cream for ribs uh, ever mm-hmm. since Houston, huh? So you just had that. I've been there. Nice. Actually, I've only very been nice. there for like breakfast or brunch in the past, but mm-hmm. it's yeah. amazing. The food there is yeah. beyond good. Really, really nice people. I guess that was an exception uh, for Charlotte. Um, <laughs> there. And uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I'm offended at airlineparlorguide.com. <laughs> all, all the Charlotteans listening, they're all like, well, we're not originally from here anyway, so whatever. <laughs> Is that what you call them if you live in Charlotte? Charlotteian? Charlotteian? Uh-huh. Huh. I would never have oh, come uh, up with yeah, that. Yeah. Well, the, jo- the joke is a that no, it's very hard to find a native Charlottean because everyone seems to have come in from elsewhere over time. Well, uh, but that's true in Atlanta, too. Probably even worse yeah. in Atlanta. So yeah. I'm going to call the you people and Charlotte charlatans. So, um, I think it's more appropriate. Well, that works both ways. Well, man. Uh, <laughs> true. Okay, okay, I guess. Yeah. yeah, anyway, so it was good. Great layover. And yeah. um, well, I'm sorry I missed you guys. I was... Very busy yesterday. Oh, but are so. you are you Sounds in the area like... somewhere? <laughs> no, no, Steph's very very so. busy. But I'm going to be in Charlotte like just about every trip like this month, every week this yeah. month. In so fact, we've, I, we've got plans to. When I got yeah. my schedule, I, uh, I I I contacted Steph and I said, "I just want to let you know I'm not stalking you." Because <laughs> <laughs> every every trip I have a Charlotte. It's just worked out better trying to get places where I don't have to do ice at <laughs> this time of year. And uh, yeah. anyway. So, um, well, I won't tell you what the temperatures are going to be next week. Just hopefully we'll be precipitating. uh, 70 something degrees. No, no, oh, no. Okay. Ah, just cup, just Just, just, a little squirt of type one. You'll be all right. Don't worry about it. No holdover, no holdover time in that one. So, uh, whatever. We'll find some place with a fireplace or something to go get a beer because it's going to be. Ooh, that sounds good then. We'll look forward to that. I don't know of any place like that, but. Okay. Well. You have time to figure yeah. it out. Do my rec- reconnaissance yeah. Here. yeah, I hear there's a zap called Yelp. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, I'll check it out. <laughs> yeah, write that one down. <laughs> yeah, let me write that, that, that down. With a Y? <laughs> with a Y, yeah, not a W. Okay. <laughs> It'll be Welp. Welp. Ow. What's that? Oh, I'm using Welp. It's just very painful. Um, all right. Ooh, actually, I've got a couple good ideas. Okay. Well, good, okay. good. Well, I look forward to seeing you next week. And yeah, good. that's it. Just uh, had that three-day trip. Uh, literally, as I said, uh, just came directly home from the airport. Actually, oh, I stopped somewhere on the way home. The PO, the APG PO box. We talked about the uh, the uh, pilots who are temporarily, hopefully, furloughed in Canada, and they started up their um, coffee roastery. And um, I was I checked my PO box on the way to the airport early Monday morning before the post office was open. And I had this little piece of slip of paper in there. And it says, if you don't pick this up, this thing is getting set back on Wednesday morning. And I'm thinking, no, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to get in until Wednesday (laughs) afternoon. So, I mean, it was like not easy to figure out the local telephone number for the book because you look up the post office on Google maps or whatever, uh, any kind of an internet search. And they give you the one 800 number. Like everybody gets funneled to whatever the, wherever the one 800 number goes, it's not your local post office and they won't, they won't give you the number for your local post office. So I ended up finally figuring it out, called them up and I said, explain the situation. I said, I promise, you know, when I come back from the airport, I'm going to right there 
and please don't send it back to, and I'm thinking this must be the package, you know, from Canada, please don't send it back to Canada because I don't want them to pay another $12 and 10 cents Canadian, um, for shipping this back to me again. So they had it. And now, now this is going to be really good audio only material. Fanfare music or something. Yeah. Yeah. Unboxing music. You guys can sing or something like that. I'm using my box cutter. I hopefully, hopefully not offending anybody, but carefully. It's been, you know, it's been 20 years, right? No. Don't slice anything. Okay. Body uh, yep, 20 years. Almost 20 years. Okay, so I showed a picture of this before, um, and uh, they took a, they snapped a picture of this before they sent it off. But uh, there's the um, the note. On the, one of the flaps on the interior here from the Lost Aviator Coffee Company. Hey, Captain Jeff, Nick, Dr. Steph, Rick, Liz, hope you enjoy the coffee. Thanks for keeping uh, me connected to aviation while roasting. And it says Steve and... Do, can you roast in Canada? I mean, I thought it was too cold for that. I, I don't think so, yeah. Um, I guess you have to have a special roaster thing to do that. Mm-hmm. And it said, oh, here's a little P.S., P.S. All this coffee is just for Jeff. Okay. <laughs> you can't see that. It's like inside the box. Uh, no, it's no. inside. All right. It's, it's in there. Yeah. And so it's we a have secret ink. So only he can see. It. Yeah. Only I can see it. So uh, let's yeah. see. We have a couple of bags of coffee in here. One is Constellation Medium Roast, and the other mm, smells good. And the other one is the Dark Roast called North Star, and so, oh, and you can see the beans in there. They look very beany. Cool. And, uh, Ooh. Um, oh, look at this. We have some other goodies in here. We have uh, a couple stickers. Uh, stickers. Lost Aviator Coffee Company. Oh, very nice. Yeah, Established 2020. Sticker collection. Yeah. Well, one of these is, has your name very on nice, it. Very nice. Steph. A um, couple of um, smaller ones as well. Uh, actually, four of those. And uh, only two of these, so you can you guys can have these these bigger ones. And then look, two um, of these luggage tag things. It says nice. Lost Aviator Coffee Company, LostAviatorCoffee.com, and it says drink before drink flight. Before flight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, that's that is, oh, that is beautiful. Well done, well done, well done guys. Yes, funny. thank well you so done. much for that. Uh, so. I will put them in my special place that I put things that I need to distribute to the fellow crew members, and then I'll forget exactly where that was, and I don't know if we'll be lost forever. <laughs> it's such a it's such a special safe place that it's. I know that's where that's where all the left socks show up. <laughs> all right, so thank you very much, guys, for sending that in, and uh, that's it. So. Um, that's you're you're all caught up now with us. I fly a Tuesday through Thursday trip next week, and um, that's it. And hopefully we'll we'll uh, record the next show sometime next week, where most of us or all of us are available. Hopefully, so just stay tuned to the uh, aviation community calendar on the website. And with that, I think now we can move to coffee fund. The coffee fund. Thank you. I was just about to skip that. I think Liz knew. I know. She I just told me coffee fund. <laughs> okay, here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. 
love coffee, I love tea, I love the APG community. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, that's Jeff Smith singing the APG Java Jive, which means we're going to talk about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support the show financially. And since the last episode, well, a couple different ways to do it. One is the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last show, we had a few people. Yeah, there they are. Alistair Kerr and Randy Ackerman uh, used the Coffee Fund Classic Method mechanism to uh, to send us in some financial supports. Thank you guys. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a new executive producer, Chris Rabe or Chris Rabe. I'm not sure how to pronounce R-A-A-B-E. Chris, you need to send in some audio feedback uh, with your name pronounced, your last name, or you can send us in some regular feedback and just give us a phonetic spelling so we can get that right but i'm gonna say rob rob or rabe i have no idea actually so we're gonna call it chris r thank you chris hey if you want to join this wonderful group of folks and join the coffee fund please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee you'll be glad you did and we will too and the guys at the coffee company sent real coffee in. And yes, or you can send real coffee and be like the real coffee fund. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with Mark's feedback. Uh, he starts us uh, with brand new listener to the crew of APG. I just found your podcast for the first time last week. I can't believe I didn't check for a podcast for one of the greatest jobs I've ever had in my lifetime, although it was cabin crew, not cockpit crew. I worked for Continental Airlines from 5-21-1975 till 8-1-1985, and one of my best friends just retired from Continental Airlines slash United Airlines in 2020. Right now, I'm looking at the ticket for when I want to the went to the excuse me i'm looking at the ticket for when i went to the fond farewell to continental airlines the proud bird ballroom on aviation boulevard in los angeles Woo! i love that place how many of us uh, show of hands here on the crew how many have been to the proud bird and in, uh, at los angeles international oh come on nope. what nope okay that's there's going to be no. a meet up there at some point in the future i like it it's a meetup right, definitely like an it. apg meetup place Right there mm-hmm. at LAX. The so. few, the proud, the APG. Yes, the few, the right. proud, the APG. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so much for that for now. Obviously, I really like your podcast. It's two hours and 50 minutes plus minus long. Uh, and my morning walk is two hours plus minus. So I enjoy the whole time. Of course, stories abound for flight attendants from 1975 on. And I have quite a few myself. But... We'll save that for a later time, and I'm frantically trying to find this one. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Unfortunately, you'll you'll have to tell us the really good ones off air. Um, off air, yeah, absolutely. Those are the ones that uh, I'm interested in. Well, let me tell you. Flight attendants. At the, at the meetup. At the, uh, yes, at the Proud, Proud Bird, Bird in Los Over Angeles. Over a beverage. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and back in the 70s, I heard quite a, quite a number of stories of air crew from that era. 
And uh, wow, quite something. Anyway, uh, take care. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to listen uh, to so many podcasts just waiting for me. Also, please enjoy the donation to the coffee fund that I made. I'm sure I will become a regular member very soon. Take care. It's funny if you think about it. I went from a flight attendant to, let's see, International Longshore Workers Union. Is that what the ILWU stands for? Longshoreman? Longshoreman. International. But what's the ILWU stand for exactly, Liz? International. She doesn't know. (laughs) International. I'm going to say International Longshore Longshore Workers. Warehouse Union. Warehouse Union. Ah. Oh, did somebody say that in the uh, chat room? No, I looked it up. Oh, well, aren't you smart? Quick. <laughs> warehouse. I didn't know that warehouse was part of that too. Okay. Anyway, he's a, he went from flight attendant to longshoreman and that was a great job to uh, retired from it. Okay. Uh, Mark Porter in Seal Beach, California. By the way, I spent most of my growing up years in California in a little town called Los Alamitos, which is right smack dab next to Seal Beach. And uh, very nice. In fact, the uh, the main drag there um, is Seal Beach Boulevard, and then it turns into Los Alamitos Boulevard, the same road. And that's where we always went to beach for the most part, sometimes to Huntington. But anyway, he said um, he's been in Seal Beach since uh, April fifteenth, nineteen seventy four. A long time. So we left in nineteen seventy two, Mark. Uh, just a couple of years before that, I think we we knew you were coming. Right. So we got out of there, the moved to Mobile, <laughs> Alabama. Anyway, no, so nice to uh, meet you. And I'm glad that you introduced yourself, Mark, to the APG community. And I think you're going to really enjoy it here. A lot of great people. Not all of them, though. Let me just warn you. There are some and out there. there's people in the chat room. Yeah, the people in the chat room are kind of, eh. but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> are they still there? Are what, they what beach was that, by the way? Se- oh, Seal Beach. great okay i I would have been a seal out there and you're offended by captain (laughs) (laughs) Um, to balance a ball on his nose that was offensive actually there's a show title right there (laughs) (laughs) oh we have a but excuse me (laughs) a bunch of show titles where's that darn yeah I, I, need, I need some liquid. <laughs> I need a, I need a beer. I should have grabbed a beer on the way back from the bathroom. Go oh, well. get one. No, I'll, I'll get one. I can get one during the uh, plane tail. What do you think? I think I can make it. Okay. Uh, item two in feedback uh, from David. He says, while I'm no longer flying, I have been enjoying your podcasts. They have brought back memories of the exciting and sometimes challenging flying experiences I've had over the years. A podcast of a few weeks ago reminded me of a challenging one. I've attached a document with my tail. And this is uh, David Schroeder. And that's T-A-L-E, just to make sure that we're keeping it family show. And he's uh, from Columbia, Maryland. And uh, the title of this is An Old Incident, But Maybe a Still Relevant Lesson. And this is from David Schroeder, Colonel, U.S. Army, Retired. He says, I retired from the U.S. Army in 1998 after 26 years of service. In 1984, I was assigned on short notice to Fort Dix, New Jersey. We had moved about every two years, about half of them around the winter holiday season, so my wife and daughter had already put up with a lot of disruption. This one was particularly problematic. 
My wife was finishing her last semester at the University of Texas, El Paso, and our daughter had just started the seventh grade, so they could not move until about nine months after I did. By the way, what I'm going to tell you did not scare our daughter away from aviation. Years later, when she was in college, she got her private instrument and commercial licenses and did a little little aerobatic training. But back to the story. Without my family, I had time on my hands. So in March 1985, I began flight training at the Aero Club at McGuire Air Force Base, which is essentially co-located with Fort Dix. That made it easy to fly on weekends and even before and after work on weekdays. I got my private license in four months in July 1985. In July 1986, I was flying back to McGuire from Fort Drum in upper New York State, close to the Canadian border, when I got into a messy situation. I had gotten a weather briefing and knew that there was a front coming from the west, but no indication that it would affect me in my flight toward the east. Unfortunately, the front moved faster than anticipated. No weather apps in those days to get a real-time weather picture. In short order, I found myself getting squeezed between the cloud base and the Catskill Mountains, and I was sure that doing a 180 was not a good option. I still had visibility of the ground, but just barely. To add to the problem, my one functioning VOR receiver was not giving me reliable position information, but I knew that if I could get over the mountain range, I would be able to see the Hudson River, which would give me a fix on my position. I made it, obviously, and flew down the river and landed at Poughkeepsie, uh, Poughkeepsie to get a soda and get my heart rate back to normal. I departed Poughkeepsie and flew down the Hudson via the VFR corridor. In those days, you could fly the VFR corridor over the Hudson River under the New York-controlled airspace if you stayed below 1,000 feet. Not sure if that's still true after 9-11. I knew the corridor well. I often flew it with my wife and daughter. We would depart McGuire in the early evening, fly up the coast to the mouth of the Hudson, and then up the Hudson to the George Washington Bridge, where we would turn around and head back down to the river. Usually it would be dark by that time, so we would be flying well below the tops of the lighted Manhattan skyline, and most impressively, past the lighted Lady Liberty. This time, flying past her made an even bigger impression than usual. When I got back to McGuire, I signed up for instrument training, got my ticket 10 months later, in May of 1987. Three months later, on August 27, 1987, after work, I was practicing VOR approaches into McGuire in a PA-28. The ceiling was plenty high, visibility was unlimited. After my third approach, it was getting dark, and the ceiling was dropping, so I decided that the next one would be my last. It could have turned out to be the be my last for all time. I had just started to climb out when everything electric on the plane went dark. No electric navigation instruments, radios, transponder, or lights. Since I'd been getting vectors from McGuire for the previous approaches, I flew the same course that they had given me. I knew that there were three Air Force Reserve 141s practicing approaches on the other runway. I didn't want to wander into their pattern. The bigger problem was the condition, that conditions were now totally IMC, instrument meteorological conditions, and it was getting dark. For my instrument ticket graduation, my wife had given me a handheld radio, but stupidly I'd left it in my flight bag in the back seat of the Piper, and it was not assembled. The battery pack and antenna had to be connected to the radio body. It was a challenge to reach it out of the back seat, get it assembled, and fly the pattern, but like they hammer into you during training, the priorities are aviate, navigate, communicate. I tried to contact McGuire on the frequency that I've been using, but no luck, so I switched to 121.5, the emergency frequency. Still, 
Nothing from McGuire, but a pilot on a commercial airliner flying near McGuire did respond and asked what I needed. After a minute, he came back to me with a frequency that McGuire had told him to relay to me. me. So now, at least, I could talk to McGuire, but the ceiling had dropped to well below minimums. The controller suggested landing at Philadelphia, where the ceiling was still 1,000 feet. He vectored me on a course to get me there and handed me over to Philadelphia. The Philadelphia controller vectored me for a straight-in to runway 35. He recommended a descent rate and advised that I should break out of the clouds at 900 feet over the Skullkill River. By this time, it was about 8.30 p. Huh? The Skookle River? Oh, Skookle. Thank you. Yes, that one. Mm -hmm. Let me, uh, no, hang on. Let me look at it. No, he said the Skullkill. No, (laughs) Skookle. Say it one more time. Skookle. Skookle. Okay. Why did they don't, why didn't they spell it that way? (laughs) I don't uh, I don't make the rules around here for <laughs> spelling and pronunciation. I've never just how it actually is. known exactly how to pronounce that. Uh, let's see. The Philadelphia controller vectored me for a straight into runway 35. He recommended a descent rate and advised me that I should break out of the clouds at 900 feet over the Schoolkill Schoolkill <laughs> River. That's By fine. The, if you say Schoolkill a little bit, that's fine. <laughs> Schoolkill River. <laughs> Not quite right. Schoolkill River. It's, yeah, just kind Schuylkill. of all together okay well i'll, I'll just put you Schuylkill. in there pronouncing it Schuylkill. okay by this time it was about 8 30 p.m and pitch dark as atc had predicted i did break out of the crowd clouds <laughs> clouds crowds i did break out of the clouds right at 900 feet the runway was straight ahead and the river was below the runway was lined by flashing red lights on both sides from the emergency vehicles i landed uneventfully and called to request where to exit the runway the controller called back a little bit miffed wanting to know where i was I'd forgotten that I had no landing light, so he could not see my location on the runway. The follow-me truck guided me to the FBO. The guy manning the FBO did not even take his feet off the counter and barely stopped reading his paper when I asked him to use the phone to call the Aero Club to get a car ride back to McGuire. A good reminder that your emergency is often only your emergency, and only you can really appreciate it. The loss of my electric systems were due to a broken arm that holds the alternator in place. With its loss, I was running on battery power until the battery was drained. Unfortunately, I was not paying attention to the battery-slash-alternator status gauges. During my instrument training, I regularly read the FAA or read the FAA and other publications about instrument flying and accidents and incidents during IFR flights. No podcasts or internet blogs in those days. What I learned from reading those reports and the fact that I had just come out of an exceptionally good instrument training program were major factors in my surviving the incident. I'm not sure if anyone will be much interested in my adventures, but Nick's most recent plane tales about the India 747 crash, whose crew did not deal well with the loss of the captain's artificial horizon, made me think that there might be some value in this after all. In my flying days, we only had the standard six-pack, so without electric power, I had no artificial horizon. But I still had the pitot-static-driven instruments, altimeter, airspeed indicator, and vertical speed indicator, as well as the vacuum-driven instruments, turn coordinator, attitude indicator, and heading indicator. On the plus side, when you lose all electric, it does not take long to diagnose the problem and to disregard the instruments that are no longer reliable. Even without all the new electronics, it's possible to get back on the ground if you do not panic and with help from friends on the radio if you have one. Thanks to my dear wife of over 51 years, I did. Please keep up the great podcast and information to the pilots of the old but still relevant lesson that things can go wrong and the importance of continual education, training, and learning from your 
yeah, from your and others' experiences to be ready for them when they do. But did he get a cheesesteak when he landed in Philadelphia? But, you know, he says, P.S., I looked everywhere in Philadelphia to get a cheesesteak. And every <laughs> and, and he actually found one. And he actually found one. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, that's a fantastic story. That uh, reminds me of a time I was, um, I was, um, uh, delivering an airplane uh, um, somebody had bought a Cessna 206 in the Keys and I was flying it from um, the previous owner in uh, Monterey California going cross country uh, over to Key West and um, I had something exactly like that happen to me over Amarillo um, I had um, the the alternator uh, just completely gave out and uh, all of a sudden I found I found myself um, I was IFR uh, with uh, just battery power. I looked down and it's like, oh, battery discharge lights on and all that. So I figured, oh, what's what's the nearest thing uh, to where I am? That's how I ended up in Amarillo. I didn't, you know, because otherwise, why why would you go there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, oh, good. He's okay. going to get some emails too. <laughs> so, that, uh, those of you listening, Amarillo, pilot guy. live in Amarillo. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm offended, Rick. <laughs> At airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a pretty town. It's it actually it, it worked out really nice because the um, the um, I didn't know this at the time, but um, they do. I don't know if they still do this. Um, they they put um, turbo props on what the what what the heck airplane was it? It was a uh, some kind of Piper single engine Piper. But uh, they do the uh, the uh, the modification and put uh, PT sixes on those, and got to ride around in one of those, and um, you know talk to a lot of the guys down there. So and, and they and I, I got lucky as well because they at the time they used to have a uh, a Cessna service center right at uh, at the Amarillo airfield. So that 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 turned out to to work out quite well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it goes down to uh, it goes down to your training. It goes down to staying uh, on top of things. It goes down to staying sharp. And um, he did um, a fantastic job getting to Philadelphia, and um, yeah. you know, yeah, get, got, got to live another it, day. It definitely happens. I had an alternator failure as well. A um, little bit different situation because it was definitely daytime VFR conditions when that happened to me. But same thing. Notice the battery discharge light, and actually, I think in that aircraft there was an enunciator for it as well. Um, so not a surprise. Um, was able to, but had I, um, I was not anywhere near my destination it was going to be dark and there was weather ahead so it didn't make any sense to continue farther than i had to so so i ended up in columbia south carolina but fortunately i was i had flown down to st simon island with a, another pilot who was picking up an aircraft so he was only a few miles behind me and we had been communicating with each other so he also stopped in columbia and we went back to um up to winston-salem and um yeah all was well and and going back to to the uh, um the new you know Garmin one thousand type um, um, flight decks that um, student pilots learn on a day, I think that's great. Um, the situational awareness that's provided by systems like uh, like those is is, is great. Um, but um, I think it's also important as as this um um bit of feedback uh, points out uh it's important to go back and 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 know how to deal with just the basics you know uh, just 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 basic additive flying mm-hmm. with your old steam gauges um and i feel 
actually, I, I fear like that's something that uh, that's being lost more and more. People are relying more and more on these uh, fancy flat screens and and uh, and forgetting uh, how to deal with uh, an issue when you don't have those uh, accessible to you anymore. So uh, you know, don't uh, don't rely, you know, only on 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 the fancy you know bells and whistles. It's it's always good to make sure that you know how to interpret and fly purely by uh, standby uh, instruments because it might save your life. So, absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, Rick, quite agree. Uh, my Phantom, by the way, didn't even have a battery. What? <laughs> no, so it didn't. You didn't lose your battery. You lose your oh, really? uh, generator, and that's it. Bye-bye. So no, uh, we had a we had a rat. Uh, if we okay. lost the generator, but that was it. Oh wow, that's interesting. Did not know uh, that. Which which was a bit of a pain when you had to start it up because you needed a um, an external ground power unit. Is, it, yeah. is that the rat right there? <laughs> that's uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Although um, that looks more like a hamster. Well, this was a hamster version, but the, the, you had the rat version. Yeah. Okay. Produces we a surprising rat, yeah. amount of yeah. power for its size. <laughs> sure. just, yeah, they were camouflaged as well, like a um, chameleon. chameleon. No. Wow. <laughs> No, but I mean that's 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 really I I didn't know that the fountain didn't, didn't have it. So it it, uh, it didn't have a battery or it, it or it didn't have a DC system altogether. Oh, it had DC. It just didn't okay. have a battery. It oh, used so you to had have to a, convert a, AC back into DC. So you had a, a transformer rectifier to do that. Yeah, the uh, the FGR two the Air Force variant uh, had batteries, but I was flying the na- old Navy variant when it came to the Air Force when they got rid of them. Hmm. Uh, so uh, and ours didn't have an inertial didn't have a battery didn't have hf radio it was uh, oh wow pretty crude did it have an engine <laughs> two oh cool big, yeah, two big powerful very nice <laughs> <laughs> very nice not sure what that was but all right um, <laughs> was, uh, mr churchill <laughs> i like phantom well, all kinds of impressions tonight from Nick. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We'll get I the like vote at the end. Which one's nice. the best? Is it the seal? Is it the rabbit? <laughs> is it the I like uh, Churchill so far. Churchill, Churchill. Churchill. Yeah. Yeah. takes the cake right now. <laughs> we'll recap at the end. <laughs> all right. Um, thank you, uh, David uh, Schroeder, Colonel uh, Colonel Schroeder, for uh, sending that in, and you make a very good point and uh, a great story, and hopefully. Somebody learned from it, and as he said, I think the most important thing in all of this was aviate, navigate, communicate. Don't forget that. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and don't get the order mixed up either. Yeah. Yeah, it, could be really <laughs> it is important bad. to get the order right. Yeah. Yes. Good point. Oh, let's go. All right. Um, let's jump to number three. I think we can do this uh, relatively quickly. Uh, Joe wrote in uh, last, uh, well, about a week and a half ago. Um, and he said he was checking his FlightAware app, and he happened to find a pair of aircraft, which were Acme charters, flying a team home from the NFL uh, AFC Championship game. That's the National Football League American uh, Football, Football Conference. Conference. Thank you. Uh, championship game from Kansas City MCI to Buffalo. As I monitored the two A330s, I noticed them to be flying at a blazing 720 miles per hour. I was amazed when I saw the speed and compared it to the other A330s in the air at the same time, which were flying at approximately 550 miles per hour. I'm not a pilot, so I don't know how to compare miles per hour to knots. 
Um, 1.15 uh, 1. miles per hour to every knot. Right. So you t- if you have uh, 50 knots, uh, multiply by 1.15, and that's like uh, 55, 7, 57 and a half, right? Miles per hour. Exactly. If I did that right? Close enough. Maybe? Close, Close enough. enough. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, isn't it? Um, anyway, uh, let's see. I know that these two planes were operating as a char- as charters, and I wonder if they had different regulations to follow. No, even though the charters are operated by Acme. I know these aircraft are not at as much capacity as a regular passenger operation and have less ground to cover to account for fuel burn, which in my mind would account for the speed. Just curious. Uh, Let's see. P.S. Captain Jeff, I'm pretty sure you have avid listeners in the Chicago area, and I would be interested in being part of a meetup if anybody has an O'Hara overnight. Respectfully, Joe Meredith. Yeah, we actually had a really fun uh, meetup there in 2019, I think, um, in Chicago. And uh, I'm sure we'll have others in the future, Joe. So just uh, keep listening to the show and look at the ABG community calendar and that sort of thing when we finally start doing. Um, Okay, look at that. Liz uh, came up with uh, 57.53 eight nine seven two four zero one one seven seven miles per hour and so i said 57 which is pretty close or, or 57 and a half i think i said pretty close and a half yeah yeah that's, that's you're right on it and a half, yeah. yeah yeah take that steph oh i don't i can't do math in my head or public math <laughs> or was it or was it liz that it was a female voice that was was chastising wasn't and me. shaming me oh wasn't Not you me. No. no it was steph yeah it was steph <laughs> i said it was close enough okay um, <laughs> right. I didn't think part. that was chastising. No, this is getting much more. This 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 passive aggressiveness is just getting out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, let me share my screen because I did this. So I'm thinking. Hmm. So Joe sees uh, what do you say? Flightaware or Flight Radar 24? I can't remember which one he said. Um, Flightaware. Flightaware. Thanks. And. He uh, talks about going from MCI, Kansas City, to Buffalo. Now, if you're watching the video, and I'll have these um, pics in the show notes. Is that coming across in the... uh, Okay. And this happens to be from Weather Underground, and it is the U.S. jet stream. And the jet stream is a high-velocity core of winds that flow over the hemispheres. And the northern hemisphere generally from west to east. And uh, the colors indicate the strength of the jet stream. And in this picture, it was right around the time of uh, these charters uh, that Sunday night after they lost to uh, Buffalo, lost to Kansas City. By the way, Kansas City is now going to be playing in the Super Bowl, which is Sunday, right? Yes, correct. um, Anyway. You'll look here. Now, he didn't actually, you know, send us a screenshot of exactly where he saw these two A330s uh, flying that night. Um, But I suspect that it's somewhere in this area with the orange, uh, light orange, dark orange, and red um, bands from the jet stream. And the wind speed on this, we'll just use miles per hour, uh, looks like anywhere from about 150 to 180 uh, miles per hour. So, you know, what the number that you're looking at on FlightAware is a ground speed. So, whatever the Precisely. true airspeed of the airplane is, then you 
add or subtract, depending on which direction the wind's blowing or affecting you, to that, and that's when you get your ground speed. So I have a feeling that the and I would bet that the A three other A three thirties that you were looking at maybe weren't exactly in this general area, or if they were, they may have been at different altitudes. And different altitudes can definitely affect the velocity of these very, very uh, strong winds. Here's another yeah, one. And jet streams usually are are not always, but generally are four thousand feet in height. So you could be outside of that uh, of the core of the jet stream itself. And as 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 Jeff said, yes, that would that would impact your overall ground speed. But um, but it's actually but yeah, that, that's where a, that actually where that four thousand foot core is that you're talking about uh, is generally you know it depends on the time of year. This time of year, it's much lower. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't know, probably maybe in the thirties, uh, maybe thirty five. Mm-hmm. A thousand. I don't know what altitude they were at, but uh, that's what I suspect happened here, um, Joe. That it was not that they were going. You know, the airplane. The, if you were in each airplane, and the, each airplane is looking at its own indicated airspeed, they were probably very similar speeds that they were flying. But because one was in this very high speed jet stream core, uh, they probably were just really kicking it, and that's why you saw that really super high um, speed readout. Yeah, no, you're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. Go ahead, Nick. What yeah. is um, those charter A330s? They're reheated. They've got after <laughs> so right, right, right. They oh, can no. just go from A to B. Little like, hamster, you know, yeah, about exactly. Mac one point five. Yeah, no okay. problem at all. So <laughs> no, but but Joe here says uh, what's the speed limit? And as 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 Jeff says, there is no to, speed limit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where we go, and we need no roads. No, but basically, um, that was. We don't need no stinking yeah. badges. <laughs> <laughs> what he's saying is speed limit here. And yeah, they're they're uh, so another thing to keep in mind here is that when you're flying at altitude, you're not really you're not really using indicated airspeed to to uh to uh to uh limit know, the airplane. Yeah, to, to limit your as 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 your governing factor to measure speed once you go into the flight levels uh, north of, you know, twenty five thousand feet, twenty seven thousand feet, you transition from from airspeed to Mach or percentage of the speed of sound. Um, and uh, there is, in fact, a there There are two speed limits um, um, regarding your mock speed or mock technique. Uh, one of them is, obviously, you can't fly any faster than Mach 1, uh, so you got to stay subsonic, which isn't a problem for any commercial airliner out there because no commercial airliner out there can fly faster than Mach 1. There is, however, one commercial airliner that can go over the second speed limit here. And there's another speed limit that deals directly with what's called reduced vertical separation minimum airspace that goes from 29,000 to 41,000 feet. And the speed limit there is 0.90 Mach. So you can't fly faster than 0.90 Mach between 29,000 and 41,000 feet. And the only airplane that can fly faster than that, commercial airplane that can fly faster than that, that is, is the 747. So. You're yeah, limited the, to the uh, A330 is limited to 0.86. So you, uh, yeah. So it. it wouldn't be it wouldn't they, be. A they problem would normally cruise between 0.8 and 0.82. Uh, so to get up to 0.86, if you really wanted a crack on, it's only going to make a difference of about I don't know 50 exactly. knots. And and the and so and not, not only that, but 50 knots at these. Kinds but the sector is so so short anyway that they that you know the 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 cost benefit of flying that fast. Versus the amount of fuel burnt, uh, it would it would be it would actually work against you. That's why 
on these on, on when, when we fly a uh, mock technique we usually use what's called uh, a cost index which is a number that uh, that works out the relationship of cost between the fuel and the operating cost of the flight itself and that is a number that is that's figured out by by, by dispatch and so that's a number you put in on your flight management computer and the flight management computer figures out what the uh, most economic uh, mock number or econ speed is based on that uh, cost index number there. But going back to the beginning here, you, what you saw is what you saw was in fact the airplane, you know, jumping on the uh, on the uh, jet stream and just riding that uh, to its destination. But yeah, but there are, as I said, two speed limits to deal with at altitude. So much stuff, you know. So much stuff to know. I know. Mm. Anyway. Well, very good. Thank you for helping me answer Joe's question. Joe, hopefully we didn't completely confuse you. But uh, one thing that I can say for sure is that I look forward to meeting you in a meetup at some point in the future. And with that, it's now time for the best part of the show. No, not the end, but... The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. And this week's episode is entitled Flying the Red Flag. Take it away, Old Pilot. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Flying the Red Flag. The Korean War had been a successful period for the United States Air Force. The statistics from nearly 900 decisive combat engagements show that the American pilots in their high-performance World War II fighters and a new generation of jet fighters had dominated the Korean People's Air Force. By the end of the conflict, 792 MiG-15s and 108 other aircraft had been claimed by USAF Sabre pilots against a loss of 78 F-86s. Counterclaims by China, the Soviet Air Force, and the Koreans paint a slightly different picture, but there's little doubt that the USAF pilots had an excellent kill ratio of around 10 to 1. In the 11-year period between the end of the Korean War and the Gulf of Tonkin incident that marked the build-up of US forces in Vietnam, it seemed that much of the knowledge and skills displayed then had been lost. Air Force strategy and doctrine remained committed to nuclear deterrence, and the air war was thought to be one that would be fought at long range with the new generation of missile-carrying fighters. Faith that had been so confidently placed in the new technology was soon proven to be misplaced, as the early generation of missiles frequently failed and were often ineffective against the highly maneuverable opposition. The tactics of the MiG pilots had also changed. Instead of the direct confrontations that occurred in Korea, the North Vietnamese switched their tactics to ambush their enemy using ground radar controllers to set up high-speed hit-and-run attacks. Against an increasingly poor kill ratio, which during the final months of the vast Operation Rolling Thunder reached 1 to 1, with the loss of 22 USAF aircraft versus 20 MiG kills, it was obvious that something had to change within the world's most powerful air force. 
The initial response was to bring forward improvements to aircraft and missile systems, but it wasn't until the results of extensive post-war studies were digested that some within the Air Force realised better pilot training was really the answer. The Navy had already instigated their Top Gun training school and had reaped the benefit at a time the USAF was actually cutting down on air-to-air combat training because of the perceived risks. The Air Force's answer to Top Gun was to create the Fighter Weapons School at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. Within a cadre of young Vietnam veterans who had cut their teeth in combat over Hanoi were the Iron Majors. This new breed of fighter pilot wanted to instill a doctrine of air combat training that had been woefully lacking. At the start of the Vietnam War, the average flying experience for a combat pilot was over 1,000 hours. By the end, it was less than 250 In addition, for many, completion of their pilot training ended up with them in the back seat of a Phantom. Their frustration was palpable, and as often as not, the guy sitting in the front came from a single-seat fighter and didn't know how to properly utilise these young pilots in the back seat. And in some cases, they didn't want to learn. Things had to change. In 1974, there was a large sign on the front of the 414th Fighter Weapons School at Nellis. The centerpiece of the sign was the famous bullseye patch that identified the building and the squadron as the Fighter Weapons School, or simply Weapons School as it was usually called. Under the large patch, an imposing statement proclaimed, Home of the World's Greatest Fighter Pilot although that claim would have been challenged by fighter pilots around the world, it marked a level of brash self-assurance that ran through the school. The USAF had been knocked back by its losses in Vietnam, but now there was a new attitude that instilled confidence into the latest generation of fighter pilots. Competition for places at the school was fierce, as only one or two slots were allocated to each wing per year. The syllabus consisted of both classroom and flight instruction on every weapon and every weapon system used on their aircraft, and study of these systems was both detailed and fast-paced. The flying missions introduced every capability of their aircraft. Intercepts, dogfights, nuclear weapons delivery, precision-guided weapons, conventional weapons delivery, and tactical considerations for every phase of flight. Standards were incredibly high, and students often observed that every ride seemed like a check ride. On graduation from the four-month course, they were expert in every aspect of operating their aircraft, and when they went back to their home units, they became squadron weapons officers, the people all aviators turned to for expert advice on everything from how to fly the best turn to how to compute the length of a bomb stick. The school went through its early share of problems when instructors seemed more interested in making the course of rite of passage with students being harassed and hazed rather than instructed. 
the arrival of more enlightened officers, such as Major Larry Keith, resulted in the immediate firing of two senior prima donnas, and before long the home of the world's greatest fighter pilot sign was quietly removed and never replaced. The training syllabus became more objective-based, relying less on subjective opinion, and tactics were honed to meet the threats of the day and not to fight wars that had gone before. When instructors initially tried to get detailed intelligence about Soviet threats, they were told the information was need-to-know, and it took intervention by Nellis's commanding general staff to get past the intelligence organization's front doors. Once achieved, though, they were able to lecture about the capabilities of Soviet equipment, but live training was a different matter. The school well understood the benefits of dissimilar combat training, but they wanted something more, an opponent that mimicked the performance, capabilities and tactics of their adversaries. They had the enemy aircraft data to work from. Operations Have Donut and Have Drill ensured that they had the details of actual dissimilar combat missions flown against enemy aircraft, such as the MiG-17, the MiG-21 and the MiG-23, all of which had been captured from Soviet forces after various defections. The story of one is in my tale, the MiG-007. With that information, plus detailed debriefs from the defectors, signals intelligence and human intelligence, the school could train their instructors to copy Soviet aircraft and tactics. It would have been ideal to have acquired an entire squadron of MiGs to fly against Air Force fighters, but comparisons with their own aircraft show that the T-38 and later the Northrop F-5 would make an excellent choice for an aggressor squadron, playing the part of the mix. The 64th and 65th aggressor squadrons were formed at Nellis, with other units based in the United Kingdom and the Philippines. The concept was straightforward. Aggressor pilots would deploy with a small number of jets to a base, where they would fly against a unit's fighters at whatever skill level the local commander wanted. The most basic mission was a one-on-one, but the aggressors, who had undergone an extremely rigorous 40-mission training program, were prepared to fly in much larger scenarios. During the missions, the aggressors flew enemy tactics they knew the Soviets used. They even tried to think like Ivan. When they were not flying, they taught academic classes on Soviet weapons, training and tactics. Of course, of great interest was the one that described the daily life of a Soviet fighter pilot, from how much or how little he flew to how much vodka he drank. A lot. Colonel Richard Souter had been one of the Iron Majors, who had done so much to change the Air Force's attitude to air combat training. He now became a driving force at Nellis, challenging the commander of the Tactical Air Command to offer realistic combat missions to the Air Force pilots. One of the post-Vietnam War assessments was Project Red Baron II, which showed that a pilot's chances of survival increased dramatically if they got through their first ten missions successfully. 
As a result, if the crews could experience these 10 missions in a training environment, they would have measurably better chances in actual combat. Souter successfully argued that this could be achieved safely and promised results. With two aggressor squadrons to fight against, they could provide the quality of training that would bring the combat scenarios as close as possible to reality. The ranges to the north of Nellis were large but poorly equipped, with only a few targets that were mainly piles of old oil drums. What he needed to create required action in a raft of departments. Operations, maintenance, budgets, plans, intelligence, research and development, range creation, test programs, weapons development, tactics and flight safety. He had the energy, organisational and persuasive skills to bring all this together, particularly since he believed that participation should not result in a grading of any kind, an anathema to the Air Force at the time. He envisioned a large operational missions, flown in big strike packages using live ordnance on the Nellis Ranges, which would be equipped with Soviet-style integrated air defence systems, fighters and ground-aware missiles. Debriefs would be aided by instrumented assessments and feedback, and the inclusion of other groups from Army Air Defence and Naval Aviation, Strategic Air Command would be encouraged. Establishing this exercise, which would have to be funded from multiple budgets, all of which were under pressure, was a Herculean task, but one that Souter proved equal to. He needed to persuade people to give up electronic threat simulators and target hulks so that the range area could be adequately provisioned, as well as convincing senior staff of other services to support the concept. He sold it as an opportunity to bring entire strike packages, tankers, electronic warfare aircraft, bombers, fighters, reconnaissance aircraft and search and rescue helicopters up against a realistic enemy that operated advanced radar systems, integrated missiles and AAA and the aggressors flying dissimilar fighters using Soviet tactics. It would test the tactics that crews were planning to use in a war in Europe and would force them to plan and execute large combined missions whilst dealing with the inherent fog of war and a well-organised enemy force. Each exercise would consist of core units of blue forces that would be thrown into a systematic process of increasingly difficult scenarios that would bring them up to full capability. The schedule included visits to Nellis's intelligence centre to examine captured Soviet equipment, briefings on the equipment, capabilities, limitations and the Soviet tactics for using it. They would fly over an electronics warfare range where the crews would practice using their electronic countermeasures equipment against actual Soviet tracking and missile radars. 
Their warm-up missions consisted of one- and two-ship air-to-air sorties against the aggressors before moving into fully integrated large-scale attack missions against targets such as airfields, missile sites, vehicle convoys and tanks, all defended by a red force of anti-aircraft artillery, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jamming equipment and the aggressors. The missions would use reports and videos from the Red Forces to analyse results so that the blue side could learn exactly what they'd done correctly and what needed work. Suter met a lot of pushback, particularly from those concerned about accident rates, but he had considered this aspect as well, since the video and radar monitoring he was going to use would also flag up infractions of safety margins. Having said that, eyebrows were raised when it was discovered that there would effectively be no low-flying restrictions, and SAM sites would actually fire missiles into the air, albeit smoke-generating ballistic rockets that were frangible if hit. The first red flag went ahead against 24 Phantoms from the 49th Tactical Fighter Wing at Holloman. They were joined by reconnaissance aircraft, wild weasels, forward air controllers and search and rescue helicopters. This was like no exercise they'd ever been on before. There was real-time comms jamming, missiles were being fired up at them, their radars were being jammed, and they were being attacked by the aggressors. It was as realistic as war could be. Helicopters even took exercise-downed aircrew into the desert so that they would have to practice survival procedures and then take part in fully-fledged search-and-rescue operations. The blue side initially showed an alarming loss rate to the red aggressors, but the learning curve was apparent, and the comments from the crews told its own story. The best training environment I've ever encountered. Outstanding training. The most realistic since actual combat. The success of Red Flag generated enormous excitement and soon Red Flag 2 was being organised. Nowadays there are four to six Red Flag exercises every year at Nellis and four more in Alaska at Eelson Air Force Base. In addition to a Canadian Maple Flag and ten Green Flags for close air support missions with the Army. In a 12-month period, more than 11,000 aircrew in 750 aircraft from 250 different units fly more than 21,000 flight hours, with thousands more of support and maintenance personnel being trained. Many countries friendly to the United States are invited to attend, such as Australia, Belgium, Chile, Denmark, Egypt, Israel, Finland, France, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, Turkey, Poland and of course the United Kingdom. All told, 35 different countries have participated. Although the early accident records show that in Red Flag's first two years, eight aircraft were lost, With experience, the accident rate came down and is now generally lower than that of the Air Force as a whole. The success of Red Flag is perhaps showcased 
by the story of a pilot returning from a combat mission over Iraq. As he walked in, he was heard to say, That was almost as intense as Red Flag. Wow. Very good. Ah, another great one, Nick Sir. Wow, was, I always <laughs> wondered. I always wondered the um. So the the exercise itself is just amazing, but what goes on at the Oak Club at the end of the day? <laughs> and before the next day, I think that's a, a different plane tale. And I, yeah, yeah, well, I think I think it's generally restricted to the weekends because uh, having chatted to a few guys that go there, it's such an intense. Um, exercise every day and you really do require all your marbles so uh, there's not a lot of activity in the air club in the evening so i'm reliably informed but having said that they you know you might have a day off so yeah why not why not this reminds me my father um his last job was with hughes aircraft in the uh, range systems division and he would i've told the story uh, several times here on the show, but if you're new, uh, anyway, uh, he would, um, pretty routinely every couple of weeks fly from the Los Angeles area out to Las Vegas. And then he'd get on, uh, what was it? What's it called? Janice? The, um, Janet, mm. Janet, Janet, Janet. Mm-hmm. Janice is another thing <laughs> that we're not going to talk about on the show. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> the uh, Janet airplane, the uh, 737 that is all, you know, painted white and the window shades are permanently <laughs> closed. Yeah. And he, he, he'd, he'd get so upset with that because he had, he said, he, I have every top secret clearance you could possibly get. And they yeah. still don't trust me to, you know, look out the window and, and such. But anyway, uh, he said that his, the only thing he could really say is that they, what he was doing, what his company was doing at the time was dealing with, um, uh, captured uh, Russian um, countermeasure kind of um, stuff that you were talking about in in this particular uh, plain tale, Nick. Uh, the stuff that the U.S. Air Force and other forces around the world would encounter if they were actually truly fighting uh, the, uh, the the Russians, and uh, it was very realistic. And his job was to make sure that they. You know, we're utilizing the equipment as the as the Soviets would at the time, and uh, provide for a very realistic environment. Yeah, to make it realistic, they needed incredible intelligence levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I've told stories about the uh, American spy planes that flew, uh, and many were shot down uh, just trying to get radar frequencies, comms frequencies, um, get intelligence about uh, uh, Soviet equipment. And people gave their lives to uh, to get that information. And then that, of course, was fed back, and uh, then you could create the equipment that would simulate uh, Soviet stuff um, and make the training um, work, because uh, up to that point, there really was no way that anyone could find out what it was going to be like unless you actually went to war and thank the lord uh the cold war didn't end in a hot war yeah but uh the uh, red flag and uh, the activities of um the fighter weapons school were and the aggressors were just crucial to uh, um bring the air force back to a point where it could be considered quite rightly uh, a, a world beating 
uh, fighting force because Vietnam uh, taught them a very hard lesson. And the amazing thing to me was that they actually let the uh, United Kingdom folk in for this exercise yeah, as well. Yeah, I think that was might have been a, a typo. <laughs> I, I think they were <laughs> they were trying to let someone else in. I don't quite who, you know, uh, Uganda perhaps, and they let UK well, right in instead. In the, <laughs> the kingdom of Uganda. The United States is right after in the list of countries, so whoever was just right before you. But uh, I, yeah, I've chatted to uh, some guys who did get out there. I, I sadly, um, because mainly because at the time I probably would have been ripe for it. Um, I was out in Australia doing my exchange tour, mm. so I never got to Red Pack. So I, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm quite interested in it, finding out what it was like. And next week, I hope to have sort of an amalgam of um, various conversations I'm going to have with people who have gone there, just you know, with some real time anecdotes, which I hopefully will be. Yeah, quite I look forward to hearing that. Mm, yeah, nice. I look forward to that. Brilliant. Uh, by the way, out of interest, Area 51 is in the middle of all those ranges. Hmm. Never heard. And uh, they, the guys used to get, <laughs> you went to fly there. You, like, spent a whole day being briefed about how not to go into Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> and make that if you did, it was like you were met uh, well, I'll, I'll probably tell it next week. You okay. were met and given a very hard time. <laughs> they had a wonderful welcoming, com- welcome committee, welcoming committee. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's yeah. interesting when you fly when you fly cross country. Um, well, you know, ATC, you know, looks looks after you, and and obviously when you're when you're filed um, across that particular area. Uh, the way your, your your flight track looks is very very interesting because it's kind of you're, you're kind of zigzagging around all the all the restricted and prohibited areas there and uh, and uh, it's, it's basically you know you look at your you look at your navigation display and you see all this you know this squiggly lines going everywhere but uh, your destination is basically straight ahead and you, I mean you're 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 almost tempted to ask for a direct but you know that you can't get it. Um, so, um, but it's, it's yeah, you probably uh, wouldn't want to either. Because <laughs> no, exactly. No, there's an awful like, lot you know of people. We'll are, give it to this guy. See how much he exactly. This exactly. Yeah. 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 But uh, no, I, 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 I certainly, uh, as far as I understand, uh, having uh, talked to Air Force guys from many different countries, red flag is the pinnacle when it comes to experiencing as close to real war as you will ever get. And it's fabulously well-organized uh, exercise and uh, tournament to the skills of the of the people who work at Nellis and the people who run these things. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Brilliant. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to pull the plug because I've got an early start uh, yes, in the morning. Please um, do. Please leave. Very close to being in the morning. <laughs> my, <laughs> okay. My well, time. Eight minutes away from morning. Uh, yeah. Well, thank no, you very much for sticking around for as long as you did, sir. And uh, uh, it's no trouble at all. Uh, absolutely, like lovely to see you all. Uh, enjoy the last half hour and uh, catch you uh, next week. All right. Take care, Nixter. All the best. Jerry, bye. All right. Let's move on with some more feedback. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Let's uh, go to four, which is, uh, (laughs) this is sent in. Well, here, I'll just start from the top. Uh, Good day, APG crew. I found your podcast thanks to the good folks at Opposing Bases and have been enjoying it as I take my daily walks. Using their protocol, I'll call myself Papa Tango. 
Okay. Another feedback from a confused listener. We use real names here at ABG, so we're going to call you Peter. And I'll make up a real name for any other phonetic alphabet name we encounter in this feedback. Thank you. <laughs> so, Peter Turner. <laughs> First time feedback for me, sparked by Captain Nick's mention of the Tenerife disaster. Here's my connection to that story. Growing up in upstate New York in the 60s, I was always looking to the sky to spot the odd airplane here or there. The local airport, KALB, uh, now known as Albany International, and then uh, at that time it was Albany County Airport, was close by. In the late 60s, my father, a GE advertising executive, accepted a job transfer to Milan, Milan, Italy. He and my mother packed up the family, nine of us all together, woo, big family, and ventured off across the pond, as they say. My first flight ever was on a twin-propeller Mohawk Airlines flight from Albany to JFK. From there, we would board a TWA Star Streamer 707 for the flight to Milan. I wish I had more photos from that time, but I imagine the smile on my face was never-ending. We lived in Milan for a few years and flew back to the States while on summer vacation school from uh, summer vacation from school. TWA was my airline, and I'm sure I racked up a few frequent uh, flyer miles as a kid. On our final journey back in January 1970, we took a short vacation in Ireland. Milan to London Heathrow was the first leg. As we taxied, the captain made an announcement that the first ever jumbo jet uh, just completed its maiden flight. And if you look out the window, you can see it. There it was, a beautiful Pan Am livery. I had heard about this plane, but never thought I'd get to see one, especially so soon. Fast forward 40 years. It's now May 2010. My son, uh, let's see, Sam, uh, is living Steven. in... Stephen. Huh? Stephen? Okay. Is living and teaching... Sean. In, Sean? Okay. <laughs> in South Korea. My daughter... Annette. Annette. And I are planning a trip to visit. In all my travels since returning from Italy in 1970, I'd never flown a 747. I decided that had to end. I was able to book a flight on Delta, excuse me, Acme Airlines, from Tokyo, Narita, to Detroit on one of the legs home. I'd finally done it. Now the tie to Tenerife. That first 747, the one I saw at London Heathrow on its maiden flight, dubbed Clipper Victor, was one of the planes involved at Tenerife. Interestingly, it was also the first 747 to be hijacked. Here's a link to the wiki page for the Tenerife disaster. So we'll put that in the show notes for you if you want to read up about that. And he said, I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to meeting you all someday. Peter. <laughs> Actually, he put Papa Tango. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I should give a, a little bit of credit to opposing bases for at least um, promoting the phonetic alphabet. because No. No. Okay. I don't think you should give them any credit for anything. <laughs> so that people are more familiar with it and don't just make up their own. I guess it's a thing in, in a their world that B. that's what they do. They refer to each other in <laughs> no, really. I think I think they said that on one of their shows that yeah. um, they that's how they refer to each other at work. Now I could be completely wrong, but it's a pretty good story and I like it. We're going to stick with it. But, you know, uh, see, if my name was Romeo, then it, uh, it you know, just it, it, yeah, okay. Romeo. <laughs> it, it'd be no. very confusing. You're not very supposed confusing. to use my yeah. name. I'm not. <laughs> well, I am, <laughs> but I'm not really. <laughs> but I'm not. <laughs> or if your last uh, name was Tango. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our 
vector, vector, over, <laughs> yeah, vector yeah. Or something along those lines too. Anyway, no, but the seven forty seven. That was just something about that plane. It's just, just, just magical. Uh, and um, uh, I, uh, it's funny that I had never flown on a seven forty seven until I actually flew it myself, and that the same thing happened with the triple seven. I'd never flown on a triple seven until I flew it for the first time myself. So I got lucky in that regard, but. Uh, yeah. Something about a 747, you know, it's just timeless. Yeah, I've never timeless, flown timeless on a machine. 747 myself. Really? Yeah. Triple yeah. seven, mm, many times, think. but not a 74. I think I've taken three or four trips on a 74. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Not a bunch, yeah, but it, a few. Yeah. All right. And it's a uh, nice, nice plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, so Papa Tango, Peter, whatever your real name is, next time you use your real name, okay? We, we, we're, we're the same. <laughs> or make up a name. Yeah, we or make care. up a name. It's a safe environment here. Okay. But I can understand why people, some people are embarrassed. Yeah. All right. Uh, I mean, I'm embarrassed. Gus writes in, Captain Jeff, I'm a little late sending this in, but thought you'd like this footage. I think it's from your Mad Dog Finney flight last year. And, of course, he gave us a link to that <laughs> MD-80 hard landing. And... Um, <laughs> He says, truth be told, this is a footage of an MD-80 hard landing at Edwards Air Force Base in May of 1980. And then I um, put down here, I think Gus is a bit behind in his APG episode listening viewing. We used this video clip along with some cartoon sound effects when I was describing my 717 landing in Tulsa last November. (laughs) We fixed it up. Even better than this original one. So, thanks, Gus. Um. James, um, we you know we talked about this system, this Garmin um, emergency Autoland system that are that is installed Indeed. on some of its uh, equipment and some airplanes out there. And uh, so here, uh, James says, been listening to you all for the past few years since around episode three hundred. Oh, that's been quite a while. That was um, at at Dana's place, right? And we had a big it was. party. There. Yeah, sometime and, in the fall. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I want to thank you for making such an awesome podcast. I always look forward to when a new episode downloads, and I enjoy coming to the live show when able. I received this article from FAAsafety.gov explaining what the Garmin Autoland system sounds like to ATC and other pilots on frequency. I've seen a few videos on what it looks like inside the airplane, but nothing about how it appears to others. Thanks again for a fun three hours every week. If you ever find yourselves in North Dakota, I'd love to have a <laughs> – excuse me. I'm having trouble, like, taking breaths of air without choking for some reason. Maybe I'm I just glad that still... wasn't your commentary on North Dakota. <laughs> no, it, no, it wasn't. Sorry. Have We're to just have to defend that. all the places today. Just in case somebody who's listening in North Dakota, they're going to go, what's wrong with North Dakota? I know. People in Amarillo, North Dakota, you know, all sorts Charlotte. of places. Spending a lot be, of people. Yeah, yeah Charlotte. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for a fun three hours every week. If you ever find yourselves up in North Dakota, I'd love to have a meetup. Otherwise, I hope to see you all someday at Oshkosh. Yeah, that'd be fun. Thanks, James. So I really, really, really tried to find some audio, like real audio that we could play on the show of what it would sound like to air traffic control if somebody activated this emergency auto land. But I, I just couldn't find it. So as you said, you can find a bunch of stuff from the perspective of the people inside the airplane and you know the kind of even the some of the things that it says to you if you're a passenger in one of these airplanes and you've activated the system but you don't really get to hear what it's what it's saying or how it sounds to ATC but 
this article did tell us exactly what it does say. So you'll just have to use your imagination. That's a, probably a computer kind of sounding voice. And uh, by the way, the um, the aircraft that have been certified with Emergency Autoland, EAL, systems in 2020 are the Piper M600, the Dayer TBM 940. Is that a new company that they buy? Huh. I didn't know that that was the name of the company. Anyway, the TBM 940, the Cirrus Vision Jet, and uh, Jets SF-50. So those one, two, three uh, are, I guess, new airplanes that are have this uh, system as an option. I think it's not automatically included. Or maybe it is. I don't know. But basically, you have to be pretty well-heeled to uh, afford any of these airplanes, right, Steph? They're all yes. pretty fancy airplanes, it looks like to me. Anyway. Um, they can perform an emergency landing in the event of suspected pilot incapacitation. When these systems are activated, the autopilot will begin to announce its intentions on air traffic frequencies. Here's what other pilots in the area should know about EAL systems. It can be activated in three ways. It senses erratic flying, stabilizes the aircraft, and checks for pilot responsiveness. If no input, EAL activates. Emergency descent mode activates after descending. EAL checks for pilot responsiveness. If no input, EAL, EAL activates. And three, EAL can be manually activated by a pilot in distress or a passenger. It, what, what it will do is it will squawk 7700 and broadcast a mayday advisory on the aircraft's last pilot-selected frequency and on guard 121.5 as follows. Mayday, 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 November 1234, emergency autoland activated. Stand by for more information. After the initial broadcast, there will be a 25-second pause for air traffic control to move conflicting traffic. 25 seconds after activation, EAL broadcasts the following. November 1234, pilot incapacitation, uh, XX miles southwest of KABC, landing KXYZ airport, emergency auto land in XX minutes on runway whatever, 00. The aircraft then begins maneuvering to the selected landing airport. Subsequent broadcasts will be on guard after initial activation. It will immediately broadcast on guard if EAL. Okay, so initially it does guard and the pilot selected frequency that that it was on. And then after that, everything is on guard, uh, 121.5. If EAL changes destination due to weather or other factors, okay, transmits on guard. As necessary, the aircraft descends in the hold at the final approach fix for landing at the emergency airport. EAL will broadcast on the appropriate ATC frequency or common traffic advisory frequency, CTAF, within 12 miles of the landing airport. Subsequent broadcasts at intervals repeat information and update time to landing. After landing, EAL broadcasts at 90-second intervals on tower, CTAF, and five minutes on guard, as follows. Disabled aircraft on runway 00 at K X-Ray Yankee Zulu Airport. Anyway, um... And it, it goes into a little bit more detail about what it does, what it doesn't do. It does not check notams, like for a closed or a shortened runway. Um, it does not avoid military operations areas, uh, MOAs, special use airspace, restricted areas, or temporary flight restrictions. Um, it does not turn on the aircraft lights. Of course, lights that are already on when the system activates will stay on. And it will not see and avoid other traffic. Uh, traffic alert and collision avoidance system TCAS is not linked to, to this system. So 
anyway, good stuff. I mean, it's an amazing system when you look at it. And you look at some of these videos about how the system works. Uh, if you're in the airplane and uh, you're just a passenger and your pilot has uh, been incapacitated, it's, it's pretty impressive uh, what the system so can do. So it, it configures the airplane, puts the gear down, everything? Yes. Yep. It, oh, and wow. It lands and it um and it, it lands um straight ahead and it puts the brakes on and brings it to a stop and then it will shut down the engine but it will tell you know it says stay seated until we tell you it's time to get out of the airplane and then once the uh, engine is stopped then you know you can get out of the airplane. Well, you know the system's not complete until you get it to complain about the contract. So uh, <laughs> I think. Uh, that uh, is going to be point. the next step there. So, uh, that's a good one. So there's some uh, some work to be done there. <laughs> that's really. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really it's amazing technology, and it's great for you know those emergency situations where you might need something like that, which hopefully are very few and far between. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, James, for sending that in. Let's jump to uh, eight. I want to make sure we get this uh, feedback in on today's show, right, Liz? Okay. Um, so our good friend, uh, Stefan in Germany, uh, sent in some audio feedback and, uh, we want to play that for you right now. Hello, Liz. Hello, Captain Jeff. Hello, whole APG team. This is Stefan from Germany calling. Yesterday, I got an email from Liz she was asking me about this special Lufthansa flight with an A350 from Hamburg nonstop to the Falkland Island. And what's about? Well, Liz, you know that already the back office is doing all the work. The back office is doing all the interesting stuff. And most of this flight, the story is also a story of the work of the back office. Uh, about um, three months ago, a German scientific institute, which is doing some research in the Antarctic, the Alfred Wegener Institute, um, had the problem that they needed to exchange all the stuff and all the uh, scientists and um, also the um, the people, the captain, the crew of a big polar icebreaker down there in the Antarctic. They do that every half a year or a year or so. They need to exchange this stuff. Usually, they exchange that via South Africa. But, you know, in COVID times, everything is different. So this time, they were looking for a way to get um, the new crew down there and the old crew up without bringing any virus, any COVID virus down to the Antarctic. So they asked the Lufthansa if they could do a non-stop flight to Parkland. Lufthansa did some calculations. Lufthansa uh, was trying to get all the uh, permits, the um, route permits, the landing permits for the airport, the landing permits for probably uh, some alternate airports. And we're doing some calculations. And they said, yes, yes, we can do that. Uh, but um, how we do it? How do we get you know, a COVID-free passengers and crew down there. Well, it turns out that um, they need to put everybody in a 14-day strict quarantine prior to the flight. They were asking who were volunteering for this flight. 
about 600 people applied uh, for this job. They took only 25, a double cockpit crew, and I think also a double um, more than enough cabin crew. They had to move for 14 days, quarantine in a small hotel in Bremerhaven, together with all the scientists and scientists and all the crew, which need to exchange down there as well. It was consisted of uh, seven days strict room quarantine, a quad, no, oh, cannot pronounce it, quarantine, quarantine in, in German, and um, another seven days uh, hotel quarantine. And it was very nice thing to watch, especially you know all the uh, the the whole crew. They started to post pictures and stories in social media, and also especially in the uh, internal network, they were posting what they were doing and how they handled these quarantine. I think one guy was running a half marathon in his fourteen square meter little hotel room and everything. It was a very nice thing to do. I think, and the seventh day, they could move around in the hotel, and they were starting to do. Zoom conferences to show what they were doing. They were showing um, the scientists were showing via Zoom conference calls the the work they were doing, the intentions research, the the work on the um, um, on the animals, on the penguins, and everything. Very nice thing. It took it was a warm you know a warm spirit going through whole the the whole company looking forward for this flight um, because it was some positive thing to do. Especially all these Zoom conferences, which were happening regularly then every day. Uh, they invited a lot of um, kids, school kids, to, you know, to participate, to see what the, what the researchers were doing, and uh, very fun. On the uh, day, two days prior to the departure, um, the, the one day prior to the departure, the Zoom conference was scheduled with the crew to tell you about the flight planning. And how everything was working. And the, the day before that, unfortunately, the Zoom conference was bombed by some idiot. Uh, I am using the, the German word. Ein so ein elendiger Wichser. He bombed it and he was putting some obscene photos in it. And so they canceled all the, the um, Zoom conferences. It was very, very sad. But I can give you some details about the, uh, the flight itself. So it's an A350. It, was had the flight time of 15 hours and 33 minutes. It was very light loaded. It has only 92 passengers on board, so roughly 12 ton metric tons of um, of yeah load, eight tons of cargo uh, baggage mostly. And well, it it's a very efficient airplane. It used only 85.5 tons trip fuel, and actually they could fill another 14 tons of extra fuel in it so the all i calculate the whole flight time of this aircraft if it would fly and run the tanks dry would be 21 hours so it's quite a quite amazing aircraft so they flew down to the Falkland Islands and some political stuff happened as well since the german germans were you know basically flying with an old state airlines across Falk, uh, across argentina over to to Falklands, they were looking for alternate airports like Ushaya in Argentina, but they finally uh, selected Punta Arenas in Chile. But anyhow, since they were flying over Argentina to Falkland, Argentina now claims that of German has officially now um, agreed that Falkland Island belongs to Argentina instead to the UK. Oh, it's a lot of stuff happening with the slide as well, political-wise. Anyhow, 
The crew is now there. They made it ha happily and safe. They're returning tomorrow. So perhaps when you um, showing this um, this little clip here for me, um, the flight at the same time is flying those 15 whatever hours back to um, to Germany with the exchange uh, crew and you know, all the other going back to Germany. And it was a very positive thing, a nice thing to hold to watch all the planning and um, and all the crew how they got prepared for this flight, the lockdown and everything. It it was a positive spirit thing for um, for me especially for the company and for a lot of Af geeks as well. Thanks again for the great show. Thanks Liz for asking me. And well, have a good one. Always lots of uh, wins. Wins is always good. Bye bye. Interesting uh, how. The uh, he's he mentions that this flight is probably as we're doing the show right now is en route and uh, quite a long flight and a lot of interesting details as far as the planning of it and the uh, actual performance of it. I kind of wish that it's on its way back right now. I think. On, that right? Yeah, that's what I meant. That are, yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't say that. I guess hmm. um, not the way oh, on the way over back. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Uh, hang on. Let me cough. <coughs> Again, just a little touch of COVID. Um, so um, <laughs> let's see. What was I going to say about this? I, I, I'm kind of sad that Nick wasn't here to, to hear this feedback because uh, of the, the last thing he was talking about, the Falkland Islands and ownership of the Falkland Islands. <laughs> I would imagine that Nick might have oh, that would a thing be or two that, to say about that. That made me that just a little bit. Oh, man. A, wow. Anyway, that's great. We don't have an Argentinian on, on hand here. <laughs> I hope not. But if there is, <laughs> apologies. You know, we do not mean we do not mean to offend. We do, but we do not mean to. Yes, so we love mm -hmm. everybody. Unintentional. Yes, and I mean that. Offense. We really do love everybody that listens to the show. Even all you haters out there. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, we really don't have any haters, which is a good thing. <laughs> They've all moved over to opposing bases. It's yeah, fine. opposing. All the haters are opposing bases. <laughs> just kidding. No, I don't think there are any over there either. <laughs> Bunch of good folks over there too. Yeah. Uh, they just don't know what their real name real name is. Um, all right. Uh, so, St uh, Stefan, uh, thank you uh, for short notice uh, request from uh, Liz um, telling us about that uh, that flight and over and back. So we do appreciate that. And uh, did I mention yeah, that interesting. I'm I'm out of that uh, that gin that gin soul that you got for me? I'm out. I'm just kidding. Well, well, I'll get some at some point in the future. Otherwise, you're you're dead to me. Okay, uh, let's continue. I'm just kidding again. I think that we'll continue with um, number nine, number nine, number nine. Uh, Aviator Tony. He's a host of a very popular aviation podcast called Squawk Ident. He says, greetings, Captain Jeff and ABG crew. I was listening to episode 457 this morning, and as usual, I'm thoroughly enjoying your analysis. The new segment on the Georgian CRJ-200 incident at Toronto's Pearson International had me very much engaged with the details of the, the event. All of you had touched on the fact that expectation bias had a major role in the crew's decision-making. This example and the specific order of the instructions from the control tower is something that is troubling to me. In all my years flying in 121 operations, I would say 95% of the time, the tower controller will issue a, quote, lineup and wait clearance, followed by a stipulation like, Acme 123, lineup and wait, runway 26 left, traffic will cross downfield, or 
Line up and wait. Runway 26 left. Expect one minute in position. You are following an aircraft off the south complex. Similarly, when a takeoff clearance is given, it is usually a departure clearance or amendment followed by a takeoff clearance, such as ACME 456, RNAV to Snuffy, clear for takeoff, runway 26 left. Or, on departure, fly heading 300, amend altitude to 5000, clear for takeoff, runway 26 left. I've heard uh, the order of clearances in this way almost every time. So when a controller issues a clearance amendment out of the usual order, it's usually confusing, as you all mentioned, because of expectation bias. Some time ago, this was happening at LAX by a, a particular controller where she was giving clearances like Legacy 789, line up and wait. On departure, amend altitude, maintain 3000, runway 25 right. The alarms would go off in my head every time she would say this non-standard clearance. I pointed out to my captain every time I heard it saying, is it me or was that awkward? I mentioned that someone's going to miss that and take off without a clearance someday. It was suggested to me that I file an ASAP suggesting that uh, the uh, that it was a safety issue that could result in an incident. That is when I learned that the ASAP program is more than a oops, I messed up program. A legacy airlines ASAP committee member informed me that they actually encourage any person that has a suggestion to improve safety to participate in the program. Soon thereafter, I noticed that the controller in question no longer gave clearance amendments prior to or just after a position and hold instruction. As I listened to your analysis of the event, I felt terrible for the CRJ crew, primarily for the first officer, who had not trapped the non-standard phraseology and incorrectly in and incorrectly believed that they were given a takeoff clearance. I wonder what AG and RH would have to say about it. Again, thank you for all the work you all you all have been doing with the show. By the way, I heard Captain Rick will be based at Kilo Oscar November Tango, Ontario, soon. Very cool. My man cave and the Aviator Sound Studios are just north of the final for runways 26 left and right. I'm thinking a meetup is in order as soon as it is feasible. Plenty of places to grab IPAs in the area. Tailwinds, smooth air, early arrivals, and such. From your friends, Aviator Tony and the crew from the Squawk Ident podcast. There you go. Very nice. Yeah, I think we completely agree with you. Yeah. Aviator Tony. Yeah, exactly. When, when things good point about using the uh, the ASAP program to point out things like that too. Yeah, that is something point. going on that seems to be an issue, not just maybe a one off or a you know um, one time deal. Definitely, don't be afraid to submit that. Yeah, I think most of completely us, agree. <laughs> most of us look at it as a okay. I screwed Ooh. that one up. Uh, let's put an ASAP. Yeah. In. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're right. I definitely keep using it for that purpose. But you know, yeah. if there's something else going on, it's a good tool. Yes, very, very good point to be made there, for sure. And absolutely, Tony, would love to meet up with you. I'm, uh, so I'm literally 10 minutes away from the airport there, so uh, just uh, just let me know. I'll be around. Awesome. Well, Tony's a great guy. I don't think we met in person, or did he? Did we meet at Oshkosh? I can't recall. No, I don't think there so. There were so many people at Oshkosh. Yeah, so He'll many. remind so, us so one many. way or the other. <laughs> It was fun. It's though. likely. Yeah. But anyway, uh, thank you, Aviator Tony. I look forward to meeting you and a meetup sometime as well. And um, hopefully you and Rick will be able to get together and maybe some other uh, av geeks from the area and 
again, thanks for taking the time to send us feedback. We do appreciate that. And with that, it's time to wrap up the show. We just have a few items in our feedback notebook that didn't get um, done today. But uh, Liz is going, yay! <laughs> She's always happy when there's feedback left over and there's more to move on to the next show. <laughs> so if you, by the way, want to send us feedback, the best way to do it is to send it to um, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. If you want to record some audio, you know, Tony should have done that because he's got a podcast for goodness sakes. He's the host. Um, but, uh, you know, if you don't called have time there, to record Tony. something, you just got called out there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to shame you in public like that. Um, but if you want to, uh, send us feedback, uh, audio feedback, just use the recording device on your phone. If you have an iPhone, like, uh, was it voice, voice memos or something like voice that? Voice memo. Or, mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that, uh, the Android platform has something just as good or better, whatever your computers have voice recording uh, memo kind of programs and record something there and attach it to your email feedback to feedback at airlinepilotguide.com. Or you could just use the, uh, what is it called? Um, no, I can't think of the name of it. Um, speak, uh, what? Um, speak pipe. Speak pipe. Thank you. Speak, speak pipe. Yeah. We have that. I have had that for many, many years. I guess as far as speak, I was like, you know, the speak thing speak. something, speak, speak, speak pipe. Speak and um, spell. and you can find that information on our website under, uh, I think it's contact us. Uh, that's there. And that's another way to uh, record some audio and send it in. Although you're limited on that one uh, to uh, like 90 seconds or something like that, but you can record a few if you want and send them in. And uh, yeah, so that's the way to do it. Um, we're also, let's see, let's mention some other items on the uh, website. We have, um, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to go to my, or our website, uh, airlinepilotguy.com. And we have uh, all of our podcasts there, APG on YouTube, if you want to figure out how to uh, watch this on YouTube and uh, hang out with all these wonderful people in the live audience, that's the way to do it. And once you're there on that page, then you can click in and actually go to the YouTube site. Uh, That usually results in a better uh, experience, I think. Um, Information about the crew, APG crew. Um, and we have a separate page here for plane tales, a little bit of extra information that captain Nick puts in there, pictures, more pictures and, um, other details, uh, to accompany the, uh, wonderful plane tales that he does the audio. And, uh, we have an APG library. If you're a reader and you'd like to read aviation related stuff, we have our, uh, librarian Tiffany that takes care of that. Thank you, Tiffany. And uh, so check that out. And if you have any contributions yourself, uh, just contact Tiffany and then she'll put them in there. Uh, Coffee fund information, APG store, if you want a hat or T-shirt or maybe not a hat, but a T-shirt or something like that. uh, We have all that there for you. Contact us. The the, uh, calendar, the APG community calendar is there as well. Lots of stuff there. See? Airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, we're also on social media or what we like to call or what I like to call social meds. So Jeff likes to call it the social meds. I like to call it Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter. We are at APG Crew. You can find all of our individual twiddle, Twitter, twiddle, Twitter handles uh, pinned to the top of the page there. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I just need to go to bed. What I'm are you very tired. I don't know. I don't know. Don't don't go to that page. That's something different, I'm sure. And I don't even want to know what it is. Don't tell work. me about it. It's fine. Um, once you're done there, though, you can head over to facebook.com slash guy. And we're also on Instagram at APG Crew there as well. 
We are. And if you are a slacker, uh, we have just the thing for you. It's called Slack. And uh, let's see if uh, Hillel is able to tell us a little bit about that. So let me see if I can find that microphone that... uh Uh-oh. What is this? Ah! Oh, yeah! Delta P! Um... Hillel? Hillel? Time for Slack. Can you... Can you... Come over here and tell us about Slack. Your timing is great, Jeff. Sorry. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Man, he's always so solid, so consistent. He's always there with me to it's tell us. It's my zipper, Jeff! <laughs> Oh. Sorry. Uh-oh. He might need some assistance. Later. Slow down next time. I'm not, good. I'm not sure. I think some of my snarkiness was wearing off on him a little bit this time around, though. <laughs> and and with that, uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, hanging out with us on the live show or watching the video after the fact or downloading the podcast from all the places. I mean, we're on uh, Spotify and Pandora and uh, TuneIn Radio and Heart something or other um, Open heart, heart. Sur- open heart surgery. Um, no, iHeart. What is that, uh, Liz? Amazon Prime? Or Amazon Ooh. Music or something? I don't know. We're all over the place. Well, we're also, all the platforms. Wow. Yeah, Everywhere. all the platforms. Anytime, anywhere you're going to find a fine aviation podcast, we'll be there. And before we go, we need to thank our wonderful... Producer, director, Liz Piper. She is in right. Ontario, Ontario, Canada. The other Ontario. <laughs> the other Ontario. And uh, she does so much work in the background. We love her so much. And, oops, there was a nice fade, huh? <laughs> and, uh, so, rough. Thank, yeah, rough. Thanks. Thanks, Liz. She doesn't hold back all the things that she says to me. Um, I said abrupt. Oh, abrupt. Yes. Well, it's not the first time that a woman has said that to me. And uh, with that, we love you all. Thanks for hanging with us. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and favorable winds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Hey, we'll see you next time. Be good. Good day.
got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline 